Weird Al Yankovic, Sarah Watkins, Doug Benson, Ahmed Best, Janina Gavankar, Busy Phillips, Open Mike Eagle, the composer of Rogue One, Michael Giacchino, and even more people are going to be performing at the Join the Resistance Star Wars-themed book release slash benefit for public counsel, a nonprofit organization who provides pro bono legal services to underrepresented communities in Los Angeles. This is also uh, a celebration of the new book that Ben Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It's the first in a series, and it's Star Wars canon. It's about a bunch of kids who join the Resistance against the First Order. As I said, Weird Al... Doug Benson, this is going to be a super fun show. Our pal Matt Gorley of Superego wrote a song years ago called Stormtroopers Are People Too, and we're going to be doing some stuff with that. It's going to be a lot of fun. March 8th at Largo at the Coronet. Go to largo-la.com for details. We hope you can join us for what will be a fun evening and a good cause. Now entering... Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to ATXFestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, videos versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017. Krista Vernoff. She has worked on such shows as Private Practice, Grey's Anatomy, Shameless, but she is here because of her work on the show Charmed. Oh, and Wonderfalls as well, which we just discovered. Yeah. Up next, a guy who uh, has done a lot of westerns in his uh, in his day, but has also done shows like Ghost Whisperer, V, Falling Skies, and the Sarah Con- Connor Chronicles. John Worth. And last but certainly not least, she's a development exec at the CW, uh, Joanna Klein. Come on up. Before we start talking specifically, I think kind of the general idea of this panel is to talk about um, rules, creating rules for worlds that are maybe not of this earth. Uh, But then I also, Joanna and I were speaking earlier just about, you know, I feel like 
any show you create, you're creating more rules, whether it's fantasy or not. So I would like to talk about that too, because I feel like that's that's uh, that's applicable applicable to anybody writing anything. So um, my first question, though, before we jump in, is just: Do you remember growing up or as a kid uh, a specific show that sort of took you to another place? And and what was it about that show or that place that fascinated you? Fantasy Island. Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't even say that. It's in the title. Fantasy, Fantasy is in the title. Uh, I mean, Fantasy Island and Charlie's Angels. Those were my shows. Those were my jams, you guys. And they were both fantasy sh- fantasy shows in their own way. Um, but I just remember early on being like mesmerized and terrified and just the idea that you could make a wish and that somebody could grant it and that you could live and experience and come out, you know, everybody always like came out better or different or somehow <laughs> understanding that living that dream wasn't going to solve all their problems. Or, it, was, it was some of the better parenting that I got, actually. <laughs> Just plop the kid right in front of Fantasy I'm, Island. I mean, you know, it taught me some things. <laughs> and Charlie's Angels is obvious. I mean, come on. I mean, Charlie's Angels was... Uh, let's face it, utterly damaging. Utterly damaging to any child who wanted to have anything resembling self-esteem about her body. But other than that, uh, you know, they, they were pretty kick-ass, the angels. And, uh, and they were so pretty. And they were, I, you know, I do, I think it was probably a damaging show, but I loved it. Which, ironically, three badass chicks, and then you, fast forward, you worked on Charmed. Three badass chick <laughs> I leads. did. So there I'm not saying that. And on Charmed, there was no Charlie. There was no, like, man pulling the strings. So that was progress. So we've evolved, yeah. Aaron Spelling, even. The, the land of Aaron Spelling evolved from yeah. Charlie's Angels, yeah. What about you? What about a show that took you somewhere? I would say the, one of the first shows was um, Lost in Space, um, and, which is interesting now thinking back about it because um, it's really about a family, you know? So it, it, it had rules. It was, you know, in, in, in space. It had Martians. It had robots. It had, you know, all of that good stuff. But really, you know, the central core idea of the show is about a family unit, how they work together, and what the dynamics are. And that's how I related to it was, you know, the brother-sister, um, the parents, and kind of a mission of the week that was really fun and was an exploration and an adventure, but then getting back to the emotion um, of that group of people. I wanted to be Charlie. <laughs> you kind of are right now. I know. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's hard to stay sober in Austin. I'll just say that. <laughs> I'll just say that. And uh, if this was 10 tonight, I'd be really lively right now. But um, I, I think for me, before any of you were born, there was a TV show on called Wild Wild West. And... Um, that was, you know, it was a fantasy show. And um, in those days, we wanted to be like the characters we saw on television. We didn't want to be on television, which is the difference between then and now. Yeah. Um, but I love that guy. Um, what was his name? Robert Conrad? I was actually pitch, yeah. pitching a show to CBS one time, and Robert Conrad was there in the waiting room. And we were there together, and I was like, oh. God, it's Jim West. He's right there. And um, you took a selfie with him. It was maybe before cell phones. But <laughs> anyway, um, so um, you know, I had to go to the bathroom, which I always do 
uh, before I go to, into those meetings, and uh, I go in the bathroom, and then he comes in. And I'm like, oh, my God. Jim West is right there at the next <laughs> urinal, right next to me. So I'm standing there, and he's standing there, and I'm kind of not sure if I should look at him or what. Where and, to look. Uh, or where it, to look. Or where to look. <laughs> Talk yeah. about, like, a Western showdown. Like. Yeah. So he kind of does a slit eye, you know, thing that Anson Mount does now, you know, like looked over at me and he goes, I almost got in a fight on the fucking freeway today. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) And then he said, I was going to beat that guy's ass too. I'm like, I got to go now. (laughs) Nice to see you, Jim. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, so that's, that's the guy I wanted to be, Jim West with the little short jacket and yeah. Now, were you guys aware, um, speaking to your point about you wanted to be those people or those characters, like those characters, are you guys, were you guys aware uh, that someone had created that world for you? Or at what point did you know that you wanted to be part of the creation process of television and not just a viewer, but that you wanted to go to the point of actually like saying, hey, I want to be a part of making that? Hello. Okay. Um, I, when you, if you had asked me when I was eight what I wanted to do with my life, I would say that I wanted to be a movie star because I wanted to go on Johnny Carson and tell people that there shouldn't be war. So I, had, I knew what my calling was from a very young age. I just didn't understand exactly how I was going to do it, but I knew that I wanted to have a voice on television. I wanted to have a voice in the world. Thank God I didn't feel a need to be a movie star. <laughs> do it, because they don't get to eat. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, so it took me until... Uh, I actually went to school. I went all the way. My, my degree is in acting. I was an actor until I was 27. So uh, it took me until my senior year at Boston University's uh, College of Fine Arts to take a play. I took a playwriting class, and I was like, "Oh, like it was like, oh, it was like a, dry, it was like I was a dry, cracked sponge, and somebody dropped me in a bucket of water." It was like, "Oh, I can do this," and then it took me another five years to do it because I now I had to figure out a, a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's when I was in my twenties when I figured that out. Now it's like in order every time. Um, no, I'm happy to. Happy to. Um, I found it pretty pretty late. Um, I would say um, I feel so corporatey saying this, but this is my story. Um, I was a business major in college, and I read a lot. I just I was always reading. I read from since I was you know six years old. I just always had a book. I was up late reading. Which is I mean you had um, an active imagination since I you were loved, a little kid, and that's yeah part of it. Yeah, and I I was a latchkey kid, so I watched a ton of TV. That was kind of my babysitter growing up. I loved watching TV, but that was entertainment. And I grew up in Massachusetts, and that wasn't really an option to be a TV writer. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know that it was a job. I just knew that I loved TV and I knew that I loved to read. So I, you know, went about, I was working in business and I ended up working um, at Disney in LA in a business job um, because that just seemed practical to me. And that's kind of, well, I got a job. I was happy to get a job after college. And that's when scripts came across my desk and I was like, what are these? Wait, these are the things that the words that they're saying that goes into that box that people act out and then I see it? Wait a minute. 
how do I get more of these things, you know? Um, and that's what I just, I kept reading. And then, you know, the, um, the creative department was like, well, you want more of those? In those days, it was a stack. Now it's in your iPad. But it was, look over there, and there's, you know, stacks and stacks of scripts. You want to read any of those? Read those and tell us what you think. And I loved it. And that was when I was like, how do I get that job? So it was definitely a, a backwards way in. But thinking back, you know, it really does make sense um, for what I do because I read. Really yeah. what I do is, is you know, reading. And that's really um, what I love to do. Yeah. Yeah. John Worth. Um, hello. <laughs> um, I, have, I, I, I didn't know. I thought actors made up all that stuff on TV. <laughs> And uh, now that I work with them, I realize they think they do, too. <laughs> but then sometimes Charlie shows up. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Puppeteers. Yeah. Um, what was the question? Just w at what point did you go from just being an audience member or liking TV or liking entertainment to saying, I want to be a part of creating that? Um, I was a school teacher uh, when I was, I was about 25 years old. And I was making $11,000 a year, living in a house with five other guys who were always eating my food out of the fridge, even when I put my name on it. And uh, we've all been there, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, and I thought, there's got to be a better way to make a living. There's got to be a way to make more money. So maybe I'll be a poet. <laughs> and, uh, my wife will attest she's had to suffer through a lot of poems, bad poems written for her. Um, but, um, yeah, so I guess it was about my mid-twenties when I thought maybe I should try, you know, if, if I'm going to do it, I should do it now. Um, yeah, that's my life story. That's the beginning of my life story. I, I'm so on the edge of my seat right I, now. I'm, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to go to the bathroom. I'm so on the edge of my seat. Well, let's talk about um, then specific shows that you've worked on uh, that specifically relate to fantasy and creating those worlds. And Joanna, you have a point of view coming from hearing these pitches and having to decide if a world has been set up in a way where you can clearly understand what show you're buying or what the passion project is of whoever's bringing it in and if it's going to be sustainable for your network or whatever. But, um, but when you're creating these shows or, or even writing on these shows, you know, I guess, you know, like we were talking about in the beginning, even if you're creating a, or working on a medical show, that show has rules that are defined by the world of working in a hospital. There are certain things that, you know, doctors do or don't do. And, you know, Hell on Wheels, if you're doing a show set post-Civil War with this guy, you know, there are rules that you have to follow for, you know, the time period and accuracy and historical context and stuff like that. But, it, but specifically on fantasy shows as a difference, when you're starting to create a world, what are, the, what are the first, I guess, what are the first steps when you get a kernel of an idea, when you're trying to flesh that out in, in order to bring it into somebody like Joanna? What do you got to make sure that you have in order to, to present that world to someone that's possibly going to buy your show? I, I think that... that I have actually pitched and sold since Wonder Falls, which was so long ago. I did pitch and sell a fantasy show. It didn't go to series. It didn't. It didn't go even go to, to pilot. So I did it really but well. But she sold it. I wrote the pilot. I pitched it to the wrong network. It was a show called Maybe Angels that I sold at CBS years ago. With you, Charlie's Angels, 
See, right, right. Uh, it was it was an idea that I had after my dad died. The idea that um, that when when super fucked up things happen to you, it's your angels who are trying to protect you from worse things. And so that that was the idea. And I and I will say that I spent more time thinking about what the rules had to be when you're writing a show about living people and their angels that is irreverent and kind of dark and twisted. You, what I remember from my years on Charmed is that, th th that you just can't break your rules. Like, once you've established what the rules of time travel are in the world of Charmed, the amount of fucking hours that we spent being like, but can they do... Wait, I don't understand. What was that rule again? Like, if they go there and they see something, then what happens? Is it a collective job of everybody to keep track of that in the writer's room? The rule, or these are the rules like... that we have established. Yes, I know that other show established different time travel rules, but our viewers, these are the rules that we've established. And so that's what... I think that, 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 for example, in the fantasy world that is Grey's Anatomy, doctors do all the jobs that nurses do. Now, we established those rules. And then we started trying to break them when the nurses wanted us dead uh, on a platter. Like, but, but every show has fantasy elements to it. And largely, I think that you make a, an agreement with your viewers, these are the rules, and I'm going to stick to them. And when you start breaking your own rules, that's when there's a really big outcry and a backlash, yeah. So, so, and when I was pitching, to answer your question, when I was pitching Maybe Angels, usually I just pitch the world of a show and I pitch the characters and I pitch sort of a shape for the pilot and then I pitch um, a, a sort of some sample episodes and I added a section in Maybe Angels of like, these are the rules, <laughs> you know. If you, I can't remember what they were now. It was too long ago. Well, you are now, the CW has a ton of fantasy shows, arguably some of the, the, bigger, the bigger hit shows, and a lot of them based on pre-existing properties we were talking about, Arrow, Vampire Diaries, you know, comic book material or books or whatever. Um, whenever somebody's bringing in, you know, an original fantasy show, are you asking them to clearly outline the rules for you in the pitch, or is that something that you kind of absorb or you make sure that you clearly know before the pitch is over, even if they haven't said it? There's so many questions there. They're all really good questions. Um, you know, first of all, I do want to say that as a development executive, you know, our first job is to be the person who's pitching, you know, that writer's first fan. You know, we really want, you know, we, we want it to work. We want every pitch that comes in the door to work. We hope that they all work um, because we want to keep our jobs and we, you know... <laughs> Um, and they're people that usually we want to hear from. Yeah. Um, so with just keeping that in mind, um, we have a trust with that person who's coming in the door that they are going to hopefully know all of the rules, and there's only so much time in a room to discuss all of the rules. But I do I want to talk about a couple of things you said because they're really interesting. For us, um, we think of all of our... Um, new shows at the CW, we really like to think of them as, as worlds. You know, we sort of like to think of everything as, you know, plus 10% of regular, you know, um, accessible sort of grounded world, um, meaning that there's a little element of wish fulfillment and fantasy. But not only that, but also just the, the color palette, the, the wardrobe, the music, the, it's, a, it's a whole world stylish. unto itself that's yeah. stylish, that feels different than possibly, hopefully, other networks and also other shows on our network. So that, those are sort of worlds under themselves, whether or not they're genre or supernatural or period or you know, just a grounded show. 
Um, and then the other thing is, it's interesting, is in terms of rules, you know, and it's funny, Chris, because you, you mentioned time travel, and we have a lot of, you, you may watch some of our shows, hopefully, um, <laughs> you know, we have a lot of time travel yeah. on our um, network, which truthfully for me, whenever I hear a time travel show, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> because, and I'm sure boarding it, you know, you figuring out the rules, but that's pretty interesting as a topic. Um, and so we have actually been thinking about recently trying to figure out some universal, sort of no pun intended, rules for time travel because all of our time, all of our shows that have time travel have different rules. Oh, so no. sometimes it's like frozen face rule. You know, it's like basically <laughs> if you go too far down a road, then I call it frozen face go far down, too far down the road, then everything sticks in its thing. Or it's like pebble in the river, where it's like, you know, everything's, there's going to be a pebble in the river, it's going to wind around, and then eventually it'll find its way back to fate. You know, and each show has a different set of rules, which is funny when you're watching all the different shows. Um, and every network has a time travel show this every season. Time oh, travel. It's going to be amazing to watch the different sets of rules that each writer... And then you may know the famous Doctor Who, you know, right. timey-wimey thing, which is like, ah, who gives a shit? Let's just figure out where they're going. It's super fun. Um, but I also want to say that in terms of rules, you know, everything starts from character for us always, and we need, or we need to, we need the world, but we need the character. And so, you know, you... The, the, the writers can, can adapt the rules. I think you're really right. You can't break the rules. But we have, you know, you can never procreate, you know, a vampire and a werewolf. That will never, ever, ever, ever happen. And then it's like, You've learned something shit, we ran today. out of storylines. What if a werewolf and a vampire, you know, are like, or, you know. But you have say, to earn it. Like the, I, I, earn I it. don't know the show that you're referencing, but I remember when Buffy <laughs> fell in love with Spike. Forgive me, I'm sorry. I have a kid now, so I know it's time okay. to watch TV. But uh, but when Buffy fell in love with Spike, that was really breaking rules right. for like, that you show. Can't do that. But the amount of time that they spent earning that made it one of the mo- for me the most powerful story they told. The emotionality of her resistance and of of his that Romeo and Juliet oh, thing that they could it just was so good. It was so good. <laughs> And, and so sometimes the, the magic is in the breaking of the rule, but you can't just willy-nilly break it. You well, have to earn it. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's, it's sort of actor or character-related or chemistry-related. It's for weird reasons. Like, you know, the only person who can kill, you know, this villain is... I'm not going to say who you may know. I don't you know. And then you're like, that's not really a great actor. You know what I mean? We don't really want to rely on six seasons of that person as... Or he became a We have forgotten writer. to tell you that, you know, if they take the pill and wear the special watch and the tinfoil hat, you can kill the villain, you know. Um, so rules can be adjusted, but as Krista said, you have to you have to earn changing them, and you have to have consequences. You know, you really need because the audience looks to those rules for play along. They really want to know. Oh my God, this is you know they can't break the timeline because then the green demons are going to come out or whatever it is, and then if the green demons don't come out or the consequences don't happen, then you sort of lose the audience. You know. Yeah, and you bring a good point up. I think just in which I, what I've heard writers say in general is that like it doesn't really help you to save your story ideas because a lot of times once you actually get to something interesting, it opens up a whole new realm of possibilities. You know what I mean? So it's just if that's what feels like naturally should happen, next on the show, kind of right to that point instead of being like, oh, but I, I was, we were thinking about doing that next season. Well, Never sometimes... Never save anything. Yeah, exactly. Nothing is sacred. John, a question for you. In terms of all these breaking rules, not breaking rules, was there ever a time on a show that you wrote on or worked on where it became a decision in the room, okay, we're going to 
to break a major rule or we're going to go against something we've set up for a specific story impact? Whenever you get desperate, you're looking to break a rule, yeah. really. I think, you know, um, probably. Um, <laughs> but just to address the rule thing, yeah. um, a couple things on rules. I think, um, sadly, I think rules are a little bit like exposition in television. Um, and um, with all due respect, oh. Joanna, uh, <laughs> sometimes... Um, Executives are more interested in what the rules are than writers. And I think uh, if you're doing your job in a writer's room, um, certain rules start to bubble up and present themselves. And you know, just sort of instinctively, if you spend any time in that room, this is a rule, a quote-unquote rule that of the show. And um, for me, rules are better if they're, if they're underground rather than above ground. You know, so that we all know the rules and we're all playing by the rules. And it, again, you know, it was only half joke. If you're desperate, you might have to change the rules. You find out two actors don't have chemistry and suddenly there's a rule about that, you know. Um, but I also think keeping it simple, the fewer rules um, you have, the better, because then you're not getting gummed up. Uh, time travel's a hellhole no one wants to go down. So uh, we lived in that hellhole on Sarah Connor Chronicles because that was all about, you know, time travel. But um, if you've ever seen Heaven Can Wait, the Warren Beatty version, that's the best rules, demonstration of rules I've ever seen. It was so simple. Uh, Warren Beatty played uh, Joe Pendleton. He gets bopped into um, Leo Farnsworth's, you know, magnificent bathroom uh, with a dead guy. Uh, Leo, the dead Leo's in the in the uh, bathtub, and um, and uh, Anthony Mason is in there, Mr. Jordan, and Warren Beatty's doing his you know crazy Warren Beatty impression, and um, and he says uh, uh, he goes you're you're Leo Farnsworth, Joe, and Warren Beatty looks in the mirror and says wait but I I see myself and he goes that's right he goes wait so when I look in the mirror I see me. But everybody else sees Farnsworth. That's right, Joe. <laughs> and Those was, are the rules. And that was it. It was so simple. And then it just let everybody go. You know, you could just enjoy the movie. So, um, yes, there are rules in every show, whether it's a fantasy show or not. And, um, uh, you know, we had, oh, my God, if I had, he, he threatened to hire a hitman, literally, <laughs> Because he said, I know people who could kill you, Don Johnson. And, um, and I, when, I, when the show was over and I was Nash leaving, Bridges. I was like, like, why is he calling me to tell me he knows people who could kill me? What did I do? And uh, at, because I had a lot of stuff on paper that came from him. And I had written down, um, some friends of mine sold a show with um, Richard Dreyfus. So I wrote down all the rules of working with Don Johnson and created a big folder that was the Richard Dreyfus rule book. And I had some amazing stuff in there that were the rules, the actor rules, which is a whole other level of rules. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, like Don Johnson would not run on camera. He would not eat on camera. Um, if you ever saw that show, you know, he had the fancy yellow car and they would always 
go after the bad guy, and then he'd slam on the brakes and do like a 360, and then he'd turn to Cheech and say, go get him, Joe. And Cheech would jump out of the car and chase the guy around for 10 minutes, and then Don would pull up, and the guy would not be looking and crash into the car and fall into the back seat. Don would say, you're under arrest, Bubba. Um, But he had a lot of rules, and I'd written them all down, and um, I think he saw him in my office one time, so he threatened to kill me if I ever We're told so you guys about it. We're so happy you're here today. We're so happy you're here today. That's such an interesting point that I didn't even think about. I mean, do you have any? Do you have any stories of? of I mean, you don't. Have to, you don't. Have to, we don't have to. We don't have to say names or anything. But who, I'm just saying. Who wants to kill you, Chris? I'm just saying. I'm just saying ex- more uh, anecdotal examples of stories or rules or characters that were killed off or rules that had to change just because of even just something that wasn't just a circumstance someone got pregnant or so you know i have so many stories that we would be here all day i I think that there are two really important everything he just said is 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 important and true that rules have to be limited that you can't focus too much on what they are when you're creating uh and, and and you can't need to say them over and over and over again and uh, and so they have to be super simple. There can't be a lot of caveats to your rules. That's that's it, it's that's a um, a lesson I, I learned a painful way. It's like this is the rule, but then this is the exception. This is the exception. Eventually, you end up when you're writing many seasons of a show, you end up making exceptions to the rules, but you can't lay them all out in anybody's exposition at any one point. Um, and then there are the actor rules, and this is one of the things that nobody wants to know. Like they think they want to know, but you, but but the fandoms want to get, they want it all to be my fault or all to be our fault when characters behave in certain ways or characters leave the show or sudden, suddenly they were promised a certain storyline and then suddenly that storyline didn't happen because one of those actors is gone. And um, there's a huge amount of press. There's a machine that is designed to protect the actors. There's still, it's the old Hollywood talent machine. There's a machine that's designed to protect the decisions that the actors make. Uh, And so fans want to look to to lay blame, but it's almost always the actors, you guys. And that's the truth. But I'll tell you some of the rules on Charmed. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. it's been long and you, enough. And you, it started, been you started, am I right? You started as a story editor on Charmed? Yes, it was my second job. I okay. came there season three. I was there for three years. And what, Eight seasons of that show? The show went for eight seasons. Okay. I was there three, four, and five, and I went back and did an episode season six because I, because I was getting married. And <laughs> Brad offered me some money. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I need a dress. How come do it? Uh, I had a great time. He was an incredible mentor to me early in my career. He really, Brad Kern, understands story and and um, uh, just was a, a great teacher to me. Um, and uh, and he continues to be such a diplomat uh, when talking about this show in a way that I'm maybe going to break right now, but I'm not going to tell you the worst <laughs> stuff. I'm just going to tell you that when I first came to that show, what was the, what was incredible to me, the rule. Yeah was that when I went to casting, there was a line on the wall in the back, and what it what had little dots on it, and what it was was a secret height measure. Because those actresses, the, 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 the Prue Piper and, and Phoebe, the originals, are, are somewhere between four foot 10 and five foot two between the three of them. And they, I don't know if, I don't know, I, I have tremendous respect for most of those actresses, and... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I will name no names. I don't know who it was who didn't want you to know that she was 
five feet tall, but we weren't allowed to cast actors who were over like five, six. So these actors would come in with like Juilliard resumes and they would just act their faces off and we'd be looking at the line and be like, what? <laughs> and then we cast Julian McMahon, but it was okay because he was Julian McMahon. Right. But, but you see how much taller he looks. And then we wrote an episode once because they wouldn't run because they're always in five inch heels because they're five feet tall. <laughs> And so I remember being like, they have to chase the demons. And so we wrote an episode where Prue came in with a bag of sneakers. She's like, okay, you guys, we're going to run in sneakers from now on. And so it was like she was laying out the sneakers. And like for one episode, they ran in sneakers. And then they're like, oh, it's hot in LA. And, that, you know. Um, and then the other thing about exposi- the, the exposition is yeah. that they just were done with it. They were done with delivering the rules, the expository rules. And I have a vivid memory of writing like a speech, like it was like a monologue. And I thought I had very carefully, I had laid all the pipe, everything you needed to understand, to understand these demons. And we got the dailies back. It was a paragraph. It was like a paragraph and it was like pithy, but there were like five rules in it. And the actress had taken this paragraph and this is what I got on the dailies. Like if the paragraph was like, you guys, if we run down the street and the demons jump out in front of the doorway, we're going to have to use this spell because we can, they won't respond to fire and they won't respond to ice, but maybe they'll respond to my high heels. Like, you know, was, you know, it, but what I got back on the dailies was, you guys, don't use fire. But there were so many rules that people needed to understand, like, the rest of the episode, that I was then in my office writing new scenes for the guest demons of the week to deliver. Let's, now, what I thought you could use when they jump out at us. (laughs) They shouldn't, hopefully, they won't use fire. (laughs) Right? Like, quick, get into the set. We have those demons for one more day. And then we learned, like, listen, it's valid. These are talented actresses. They're tired of delivering bad exposition. Give it to the guest stars. So then we started writing it for the guest stars because... They're happy to have lines. I mean, They're they're happy to have lines. I'm appreciating that show more by the second. (laughs) By the way, I'd like to now give the network impression of what what we know about all that behind the scenes because it's really important and strong. It would be like... Everything's fine. And we go, cool. <laughs> I love that episode. So in terms of the behind the scenes stuff, we're very fortunate to be very protected from that stuff, I would yeah. say, for the most part. And we're happy to have a great show. And we say, like, fine, you change the rules because now they're all going to run in high heels. We go, that sounds like fun. <laughs> you know? Sure. A lot of chaos yeah, we behind had, the scenes. Um, um, I was doing a cop show. I can't say which one took place in San Francisco. And, um, and I started noticing in dailies that our star was always, always in kind of when he would go to a crime scene, like in a store or something, he'd always be positioned in front of the door with that how tall are you thing on the wall. And I kept looking at going, wow, I don't, is he that? I don't think he's that tall, is he? And then episode after episode he'd be by that thing and uh, I just don't think he's that tall I really I really don't and then I found out that they would lower that thing down and he would stand in front of it so he so people would go oh shit that guy's tall you know and 
Yeah. This is so fascinating because, I mean, you create so much, or you put so much time and energy and effort in creating, I mean, for the, obviously when you pitch a show, nobody's cast yet for the most part, into creating these minutiae of rules a lot of times, especially if it's a world that's completely fictitious. And then re other people come and join your vision and it's gonna shape and shift and you know, all of these things are real issues on the, on the day that you have to deal with and still deliver a show that fans wanna see and, and the expectation that you've set up for whatever show you're on. Um, listening to you talk about Charmed and the, the, the re-explaining of the rules made me think of something. You know, that was during a time where Netflix wasn't a thing, where, which we talked about just the other day, how you said there's a whole new generation watching Charmed because of it being on streaming. But it made me think of something in terms of just the, the rules in that, you know, nowadays we can DVR, we can rewatch, pause, on demand, watch an episode over and over at our, at our whimsy. But when that show originally aired, you were week to week just catching an episode and you couldn't really rewatch re it unless you VHS recorded it. So the re-explanation of rules was I think probably more important then in, in a show like that because if new people are coming in or if people are missing an episode, there's not this like, oh, well, I'll just tonight watch the first four or five and I'll catch up or I didn't really understand that. Let me rewatch it. And like, oh, I get it. Like, it, so do you guys find now in the era that we are with this sort of like the ability to, I guess, scrutinize to the nth degree rules that you've set up or things or have fans point out, wait, that doesn't make sense because of, you know, that it's sort of changing how the dynamic of how you work in a room. You know, the rewatchability of something, you know. Yeah, yes. It changes the conversation in the writer's yeah. room. Uh, there are, when fans can watch and rewatch and binge and re-binge and watch them all back to back, um, it, it does affect how you tell the stories. Yeah. yeah. What, about, what about from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a huge um, social media presence, so we have a lot of direct feedback with our fans who are just sort of, you know, rabid for information sure. about the rules of our shows. So we often, you know, there have been a few times where fans have found, uh, I guess I'd say maybe a rule tiny being broken. holes <laughs> in the rules that yeah. we like to call Easter eggs, you know, which are like... <laughs> We planted that one on purpose, and you caught it, and you're gonna find out you're next special. season why that. Yeah, um, but you know, but for us, um, you're it a gets, real fan. It's you're a true fan. You get a sticker and a check, you know, and your thing. Um, you know, but for us, it, it's it's more conversation. You know, so the more they can watch and rewatch re stuff, it's great because you know we we really embrace our fans and their and their feedback. Um, and, and want to know what they're thinking, and if they catch, you know, breaking rules, or if they have questions about stuff, or they rewatch stuff um, and find other things, and they're not consistent. Um, for us, that's just more talk and more, you know, um, conversation, and that's always good. Yeah. John, a question for you with Sarah Connor. I mean, something like that, where it's coming off of this hugely successful film franchise. Um, what was it like working on that show? And were there were there certain limitations and or freedoms that you found because of a previous set of rules that had already been established? What was it like sort of taking that into the television or working on that in the television space? 
Well, the good news there was everybody, my attitude was everybody knows what this story is. So let's not waste a lot of time telling them what they already know. Um, I think that's a trap we sometimes get into. We want to tell people what they already know. And um, and particularly as what, what you were just talking about, people can look at these things over and over again, and I think there's a sort of a frustration level if they're being told what they know over and over again. But um, so we just, we just were trying to tell um, the human story uh, in that show, and uh, where it really got difficult is when we started dealing with, you know, the Terminators and people coming through through the time portal and how did that happen and you know um, I wrote an episode where Richard Schiff was in it and he played a watchmaker or something from the future and it all took place in a container box and which I felt like I, well, I feel like I'm in right now actually <laughs> um, but um, that was an effort to sort of keep everything contained and sort of not have to deal with how he got in that box, you know, because it was too, it was too much. Um, and I remember really struggling with, I'm sorry, I can't remember the details on, on what happened there, but I was struggling with trying to explain it because it was a really rule heavy thing. And, um, we were all struggling, and then, thank God, one day Josh Friedman walked in and he said, I got the answer. And I said, what is it? And he said something like, you don't have to worry about that whole thing you're worried about because it never happened. I went, <laughs> right. <laughs> you're right, we're in the box. It never happened. So that, thank God, you know, somebody had a brain. Um, I think it, he ate a lot of sushi, so I think it was that's why he was able to think like that so clearly about rules. But um, yeah, what was your question? That was I wanted to hear that that I wanted to hear you in a box. That was my that was the answer I wanted. Um, as we kind of get to the point where I want to open it up to questions, I guess my final just general question is thematically maybe or what is it about the fantasy genre that you think I mean arguably Game of Thrones Walking Dead like the the shows on CW are are arguably some of the biggest shows on television just regardless of their genre they just happen to be fantasy what do you think is it about this genre specifically that um, is allows for this such rabid fandom or just makes you know, makes for such a popular television watching experience? I mean, is it just because there's this level of escapism um, that people are, are allowed to experience every week by going to these different places? Or what do you think makes the fantasy genre uh, so, so big and popular? I think that television is for women what sports is for men. <laughs> this is my theory. I, I, can't, I can't speak to that. I don't know because I'm, I'm not a part of the fantasy fandom, although I'm a little bit obsessed right now with Orphan Black. Like, there I you always go. have one. So you can speak to it as a fan. I mean, I, but why, you know, what is it? I, I, I mean, I love the show. I think she's a fucking 
genius, like on a Meryl Streep level. Correct. I watch that show and can't believe what she's doing. So you're there for the performance. I lose sight of the fact that it's not nine actresses all the time. I don't understand how she hasn't won every single award. And talk about rules and storytelling. They are busting that shit out. They are doing that so well, it shocks and annoys me. That's, that's when I know that TV is good, when I'm annoyed. <laughs> also, Mr. Robot, I, I'm a, uh, obsessed with and angry. Angry. I'm angry about it. It's too, I don't know how they got it on TV. I'm annoyed. So, um, but so, and so I'm a fan, but like I'm a fan with my boyfriend in the living room. But what I'm saying about the about it being, and so the women and men isn't fair, but it's like you see um, sports fans, and they're crazy, and they're rabid, and they scream, and they scream like the TV can hear them, and nobody thinks they're weird. Right. Nobody right. judges. My them. husband does it constantly at they're full volume. They're, they're fantasy football. I was married to a man who spent more time on fantasy football than any other single thing in his life. Fantasy football. Fantasy football. They're building a team. Nobody thinks it's weird. Nobody asks why they're obsessed. Nobody talks about it. But we get that way about our TV shows, and everybody's like, wow, those fans are nerdy. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, is, is human emotion not acceptable to you? <laughs> you? There has to be a ball involved for us to be passionate about a thing. Like, people ship relationships in television the way people ship quarterbacks. And it just is, it's just like apples and oranges. Like, this is my jam. This is what I'm passionate about. Yeah, so I don't know why fantasy more, I don't, I don't even know that fantasy more than anything. I mean, I got more letters about, you know, Meredith and Derek. Sure, or, yeah. Actually, Izzy and Denny than, than anything I've ever done. But, um, but I think that it's, that the fandoms find each other. And I think it's often because they're, they've been called like nerds or something in high school. So they have to bond together for safety and numbers people. and packs. I'll find my people. Yeah. It's like the way theater kids, like I had to find my people in high school. Yeah. They had to be the people who like to sing in the halls. Those are my people. I don't like sports. <laughs> you know? So I, I think that the internet has made it possible for nerds. And I say that in the most, in the most respectful sense. Oh, yeah. And I am. I am one. I am one. To, to, for us to find each other and to bond together and talk about the thing that we like that doesn't it's involve It's okay to yell passionately about this thing It that involves we love. a fireball and a demon, but it doesn't involve but a fireball. But they football. can't use fire. <laughs> but, and, and you, I mean, you've got Supernatural, the sh- literally the show that's, what, 12 seasons now? I mean, yeah. that's yeah. just bananas. What do you think for you? I mean, By for the way, you, you got... name Krista the two shows that I, I would love to have on the CW Network. Orphan Black and Mr. Robot. Those were like, I don't know how I missed that. I didn't even have the opportunity, but if I did, I would have loved to have those. Yeah. I would um, have loved to have thought of them and written them. I, w- I wouldn't have, <laughs> but that's why I'm mad. <laughs> um, well, I'll say, the, I'll say the networky answer because sure, I'm here. Yeah. You know, why that's, not? That's who you are? Um, here I am. Um, you know, I, I would say the three main reasons um, for fantasy shows is, um, you know, one wish fulfillment, as you said. I mean, it really, we, you know, live sort of regular lives and are, you know, grounded and we have responsibilities and, you know, we have things we have to do every day and, you know, there's some wish fulfillment in, you know, living a completely different, deep, different life. And sometimes it's even, I always talk about it even on shows like Lost where, 
what, you crashed on a desert island, but there's wish fulfillment there that, you know, you don't have to check your phone. You know what I mean? You don't have to, you know, go to work. You're just like sort of looking for bananas, you know, trying to find food and that's sort of an element of wish fulfillment and fantasy. Um, and then, you know, the other one, what did I, how many did I do so far? That's wish fulfillment, heightened stakes. Because it's like, holy shit, I gotta save the fucking world. You know what Any, I mean? Anything like that, is possible. Normal really. people don't have to do that. Right. You know what I mean? Or like, I have 10,000 warriors running at me. Like, normal people don't have to do that, you know? And Speak then for, for all, yourself. What'd you say? Speak for yourself. Yeah, just for, just for one or two of my shows. Um, and then for us, the, you know, the marketability. It really is just a, a big idea, um, supernatural, genre, not the show, I mean the show also, but, you know, anything supernatural, anything, you know, heightened fantasy, um, they're very marketable. You put them on a billboard, um, you know, um, at, at the end of the day, people notice them. Uh, but then I just want to riff off of what one thing that Krista said, which is, um, or, or in a, and also a question that you had about supernatural, right. which is character. You know, for us, really why you're there for supernatural for all those years is a bromance. It's yeah. just the brothers. I mean, those guys are absolutely adorable. They're yeah. super funny. They love each other. And as you may or may not know, like they're best friends in real life. You want to be a part of that friendship. You know, Vampire Diaries, that's a love triangle. And that's also a bromance, you know. So yeah. really, it's what's at the center of it that makes it work. It's, you know, we need we need marketability. You know, we, we all love, you know, sort of wish fulfillment in TV. That's why we watch TV. But at the end of the day, we're there for whoever that, the you know, the, the core characters are. And if we're not interested in, you know, that those central family relationships or romances, then the show's going to fall apart, yeah. no matter how cool it is, yeah. you know. You're t I should have been sitting over there because this is a tough act to follow. You guys are... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's so we're there. always just like, but, and then there's John. Yeah, um, there is a male side to the fantasy thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so when I'm watching Orphan Black, I'm thinking the Vikings are not playing very well this year. <laughs> and if I was 40 years younger, five inches taller, not married in a place where I could be introduced to that woman <laughs> and she had any interest in guys like the fantasy me, I could be with eight of her. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> so that's how, that's how we do, right, guys? But that's, that's true. I mean, there is an element of just that, like, you know... That, that sex appeal, too, that sometimes you get to bring into these, you know, characters that you create from other worlds. Um, well, let's open it up to a couple questions as we wrap it up. Does anybody have any questions for our panel? Yes. Oh. You're rethinking your career. Oh, yeah. Shoot you in the face? I was there. Yeah. I watched that panel. Yes, that happened. I got in a fist fight with Craig T. Nelson, too. And he seems like such a calm man, right? So surprising. I'm... My wife, who's here, would say, what's the thread, common thread, in all this? It's you. Now I have a thing with TSA agents. Like, I... 
was trying to go on vacation and almost got arrested. And then I went to pick up a friend at the airport, and the TSA lady was like, we got a guy here, he's really a problem, he won't move his car. I just got here. What? My wife said, see, you, common denominator. What was your question? Why do I fight with people? She's fearing whether she should be a writer. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Chris has been in a lot of fights. Uh, I have, actually. um, I don't think I've ever managed any physical... I haven't had physical fights with writers or actors. Uh, But but we do all receive death threats now that the internet is... I mean, we all receive death threats. Yeah, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to... Like, we've all had to unlist our phone numbers and our addresses and things because fans are rabid. And whether they mean it or not, we receive actual death threats. Um, and then, you know, writers are passionate people. And, you know, you, we, we find, I mean, we find the story often in the writer's room, it, there's a lot of acting out and a lot of remembering of our deepest pain and talking about it. And you're, and you're pitching your heart out, you're pitching your heart out, and somebody will be like, you'll, I'll be like, and then he, this, and then. Somebody will go, well, what, or, you know what, what if this? And you're like, oh, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just opened my heart and bled on the table, and you were like, "But what about you guys? Are we gonna order lunch?" Oh, you and me, you and me. And then there's the cone of silence thing in a writer's room, you know, like cone of silence. And then you're copied on an email with some other jackass who's told the world the story you just told them, you know, and you're like. What happened to Kona Silence, you know? Silence. Or some asshole sits on a stage in Texas and tells the secrets of the show after yeah. there was a cone of silence. Is there a statute of limitations? Listen, don't let this ruin any of your aspirations to be writers, okay? You may not, you will live very prosperous lives, okay? Listen, it, we are passionate. We are, uh, Hollywood is a town full of artists. It's a commerce town, but, it's, but, but artists who want to tell stories, it, whether they're actors or writers or directors or editors, we are artists. We are, we are passionate. We have, we, uh, you know, we, we care deeply. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm largely joking about the fights in the writer's room. There have been very few times, there have been one or two times, where I've had to go and sit down with somebody and be like, do you actually want to kill me? <laughs> but, yeah. One more question. Yeah, right here. Uh, this is more a question for Joanna because you said you read a lot of books as a kid, but if you guys have answers to this too. Um, there have been a lot of um, fantasy book adaptations like TV shows recently, like you know Game of Thrones, Shadowhunters recently. Are there any book series that you, like fantasy book series that you read maybe as a kid or maybe recently that you think you would love to do an adaptation or love to see an adaptation of? Yes, but I can't share them here <laughs> <laughs> because I'm currently because trying to option them. Krista and I. So keep your paws off them. And Krista and I would steal them if she said. <laughs> yeah, anything. there you go. Yeah. I still read, and and you know those are the sort of the really fun ones to get are just the, you know, books passed from friends who aren't even in the business. You know, my mom is a big reader, and she's like, you should think of this for for a series. Um, and we're lucky to. That's another you know part of my job that I love is agents and and you know book publishers sending us material um, that um, you know that that 
might make a good series and not having the time to read them all. They sort of stack up next right. to my bed. I read like 20 pages and then I'm like, shit, I gotta read another book and then they all stack up. Um, so yes, I mean, the answer that I'm going to, an- the, the, question, the part of your question that I'm going to answer is yes, I definitely have books that um, I would like to adopt into series but I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. Because she trying to do it, y'all. <laughs> All right, let's do one more question. If you have we'll any, let me know. Yeah. Uh, let's go way in the back. Hi. So my question's for Joanna. Um, specifically with the CW, you guys have something unique with Berlanti because you now have four shows that are interconnected. And without giving spoilers... Flash season finale kind of had something that affected that entire universe. How do you deal with that? Is that something you guys plan out? Like they let you know, okay, we're going to do something here. It's going to affect all of the other shows because it's, I mean, it used to be rules were just contained within one show and that's really easy. But now that you have that, and even with Vampire Diaries, you have Vampire Diaries and Originals that can affect each other. Cross-pollinating of rules, yeah. So how do you have, when something that big happens... Is there a process that they let you know so you're like, okay, we're, we're going to make this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, there's definitely a process. I think one of the benefits of having, um, you know, Berlanti be part of a lot of our shows is the fun um, that he can have and we can have with kind of cross-pollinating all of those, whether it's uh, obviously just crossover shows, and we even crossed over with... Yeah. Supergirl on another network, which now is on, you know, is coming to the CW now, um, which was really rare to do that. But yeah. they're just both Berlanti shows, and they can make it happen. And it's publicity for both, so why not? Um, so that is a rare kind of benefit, um, you know, planting spinoffs. We have a lot of conversations about that too because it's a new show, so we have to treat it like, you know, a pilot and really pay attention to what the episode is where we're introducing a new character who we're thinking might be part of, you know, a spinoff. Um, so all of those discussions, um, you know, are had, and those people, the DC people, the Berlanti people, you know, all across the board, um, their brains think in that way, you know, to what's sort of next, and they have kind of a plan. They want to keep their business running. Um, and so we're fortunate they, you know, they, they, um, they're really strategizing, I think, for the next, yeah. you know, number of years what might work. And sometimes those don't always work. I mean, we've had those, too, where we think that certain characters are going to spin off, and then for, you know, whatever reason that doesn't work, um, but it is a you know in terms of having I don't know you might probably there's a name, mega producers or what would you yeah. call that mega producers you know it's weird I, I get it probably from the outside of having um, so many shows from the same Uber producer but that's that's probably um, the greatest benefit of it too. Good question. Thank you for your question. All right, I think we're out of time unfortunately, but um, thank these guys for being here. Thank you. Thanks for coming out so early. Yeah. In order to bring out the panel, I'm going to introduce our moderator, Jessica Shaw from Entertainment Weekly Radio. And she's going to bring out the group. When Ugly Betty premiered in September 2006, there was nothing else like it on American TV. What other show could incorporate secret babies, extortion, coming back from the dead, under the sex, sex desk, sexual favors? It's hard saying it, it's hard doing it. Backstabbing, 
affairs galore, and my personal favorite, stealing sperm from a corpse. (laughs) And what other show would balance it with one of TV's greatest American families, the Suarez family? So much heart, so much bitchiness, four seasons of Emmy and Golden Globe winning greatness. Let's get all that greatness out here now. Please welcome the cast and the creator of Ugly Betty, Silvio Horta, creator. Tony Plana. Mark and Delicato. Rebecca Romaine. <laughs> Vanessa Williams. <laughs> Michael Yuri with a tough act to follow. with you. Tell me about the pitch meeting for this show. Tell me about the very beginning. The very beginning. Um, You know, this is based on a Colombian telenovela. Uh, They had been trying to adapt it for for a number of years, and it just didn't quite work. And uh, the producers, Ben Silverman and and Terry Weinberg, approached me and Salma. And... uh, I am like, how do I make this work for American TV? How do I make a show about the assistant to the editor of a fashion magazine, something that doesn't inherently have a story engine, which is the first thing that, if you're going to pitch something, everybody asks, what's the engine? So I came up with the brilliant idea of making Betty an FBI agent. And (laughs) I remember getting on the phone with Ben and Terry, and there's, you know, the, the typical niceties that are exchanged, and great, we love you, we love what you've done, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, get ready. It's a little different than what you're thinking, but here's the show. Betty is an FBI agent undercover at Mode Magazine. And I met with just crickets, silence. And I said, or maybe not. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, look, uh, we think what, what's there, what was done originally, 
what worked and and stay with that don't don't shy away from don't worry about these you know the the typical questions that you get asked what's you know what's the drive what's the end that will come let let the characters inform that and so i did and i'm and thank god i was steered in that direction absolutely america when you get the call saying listen uh they want you for this part of ugly betty are you like really does it have to have ugly in front of it um n- no um i i didn't get a call i ran into selma hayek at a, as one does yes yeah, so, you know as one does um in L.A., I won't tell you the name of the hotel because that's just too douchey. We were at a hotel. I ran into Selma Hayek, and she ran up to me, and I hadn't heard anything about the show, and she just ran up to me and said, you are my ugly Betty. And I, and I was like, I don't know what that means, but I'll be whatever you want me to be. And, um, and then she pitched me the show. She said, it's this Colombian show, and it's about this girl who um, looks like a train wreck. I was like, got it, good, I'm there. Um, uh, and she comes into this world of fashion and she turns everyone else beautiful from the inside out. And I just knew right away that that show had to exist. I knew that uh, little America growing up with so few realistic portrayals of, of, of women, you know, beautiful and flawed and, and just real. I just knew immediately that that show was going to exist and that it was going to uh, resound with people. And, and so from there on out, I was, I was all in. I was a million percent in. And, you know, it's funny when people are like, oh, what was it like to play an ugly character? I mean, we never ask men that, you know? We just say, what a great performance. Good for you for taking on a character, you know? We don't... I think it's... I think it's kind of sad when, as a woman, the bravest thing you can do is be ugly, you know? It's like, who cares? And then what? And, you know, that's what the show was about. It was about, you know, valuing a person for everything that they, that they have to offer beyond, you know, the, the surface, so... And what was the moment for the rest of you, if you can just go down, that you thought, I must play this character. I get this person. Um, I, I'll tell you, I, well, I knew as soon as I read it that I wanted it. I wanted it bad. Oh, yeah, I, did, I did actually audition for Betty. <laughs> <laughs> I did. But every Latin actress in L.A. and New York, I think, did. Um, but then, did you see Salma Hayek in a hotel also? No. <laughs> I wish I did. I don't travel in those circles. <laughs> um, but, but, I, but then I got called back. Silvio and Salma called me back for Hilda. And um, yeah, so it was, it was just a, a fight to the death. Well, I mean, Michael, you were supposed to be like a one-hit wonder on this. I mean, Wilhelmina was going to have a different assistant every week. And it's hard to imagine the show without Mark. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's nice. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my, my character was supposed to uh, be replaced every episode. She was going to have a new assistant every week because either uh, they quit or were fired or murdered, uh, murdered or, or... Wait, let me... This, uh, is, this is a myth, and I like it, but let me... Let me there, there's a, re- a truth to it, which oh. is... Um, they only always give us a certain amount of money in a budget. 
for a pilot. And so the way to sneak people, to get people in that aren't supposed to be regulars is you make him a guest star. So we said, no, no, he's not going to be a regular. It'll be a guest star, and then we're going to get a new assistant. And that's how we were able to... I have been telling that story wrong I love the story. I watch you say it, and I just... I'm just silently nod and like, yeah. But yes, there was no, there was not going to be, once you came in, there was not going to be another assistant. Oh, so that's the truth. You. Thank you. How about you, I'm going to stick to the other story. Just, it's just better for me. It's just better for me. It, it's a sexy You know, story. it makes me look really good. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick to it. Well, what, one of these stories when we did do the pilot, when we were talking about the original idea of him not being there is when uh, Wilhelmina gets Botox and in the rehearsal, Michael came up with the idea, because I give him a little bit left over, I said, do what you want with it. And he said, how about I tape my eyebrow up? So I have one eyebrow up that, that is, do you remember that? Yeah. And you went inside, you taped and you pitched it. And of course I knew that he's a Juilliard grad, I knew that he was a brilliant actor, and we had so much fun playing, and I knew that we have to have him, so. I know, that was amazing. Well, and you didn't have to... Now that we know. You know, you, you, you know, to her credit, she was the star. I mean, she was the, 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 you know, she was the star at the time and, 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 and playing a diva, uh, uh, and a diva in her own right, in all the good ways, and, um, and none of the bad, truly, truly of none of the bad. I mean that, I mean, that's just like none of the bad. And she didn't have to share anything with me. She didn't have to share the screen with me. She didn't have to listen to my stupid ideas and, and encourage them, and, and, and she did. And but we became as one. And actually, again, in the, in the actual pilot... For instance, he was so brilliant, um, he started to kind of mimic my, my movements. And when we do that big conference scene, conference room scene, where Daniel is pitching something, we, we walk in and, and flourish, uh, and I go and slink into the chair, and Michael slinked into the chair exactly the same way, <laughs> and we knew we had something there. Yeah. It was good. It was good. How about the rest of you? I mean, Judith, when you signed on, did you know that your character would start a magazine called Hot Flash? <laughs> that, that I would watch? Hot Flash? Oh, Hot Flash yeah. magazine. No, that was one of the greatest things that was uh, <laughs> identical to what I was going through personally. Anyway. <laughs> I have a, 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 a very different story because I was not in the pilot and I had done a pilot about the year before with Silvio, uh, that was a pilot called Sold that took place in Los Angeles and it was about the real estate market in Los Angeles. And it did not get sold. And so, and so, but Silvio said to me, I promise you that I will find something else for you. And man of his word, they had started the show and he was apparently looking for some place to put me. And he came up with this character. And I think I came in, was it the middle of the, when you were guys, middle of shooting the first season? or yeah. Episode yeah. six. Episode six. <laughs> and, and so that, that was how that happened. And it was, uh, it was, for me, miraculous. And really, like, one of the greatest things that ever occurred. Because when I walked into this family... Everyone, to a person, welcomed me with open arms in a way that I had not experienced in the business before. And it was illuminating and uh, encouraging and, and really thrilling. And my first scene was with Eric. Uh, he came to visit me in the sanitarium. And I'm still there. 
I remember that day because it was a split unit crew that went to go shoot you guys. And then they came back to the main stage and they came back and the whole crew was like, oh my God, Judith Light, Judith Light, Judith Light. <laughs> and from that day on, you were, you were the star of the show. Thank you, sweetie. I love, that, I love that you mentioned that it was like a family, because I, when I think of the show, I think so much about, and, and it was even in the words and the writing, there are so many moments of like, this is, this is what family is. And maybe it's, you know, not necessarily, there's a wonderful moment with Michael and Becky, uh, with Mark and Amanda, about being family and about, you know, maybe your birth family isn't who you are. And, 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 I, and I think that you all really feel like family toward each other. But I do want to talk about the Suarez family. Because who did not want to be in that family? I mean, I, Ignacio, such a great dad. Hilda was is such a great mom. Justin, so ready to sing a show tune on the subway. <laughs> Sylvia, when you wrote these characters, was there a sense of like, I need to write this amazing Latino family because we don't see that on TV? Um, you know, I was just driven by, I, I, you know, you write what you know. I grew up with a single mom and, and, you know, a sister that was very much, whose name is also Hilda, (laughs) (laughs) very much like Hilda. And, you know, I saw, I wrote a lot of myself in, in, in Justin's character, Mark's character. So, yeah, it was less about, I'm you know, a, a deliberate, I'm going to write something that's different for TV than I'm going to, I want to write about my, my own life and experiences. And, and Tony, I wanted to ask you about the storyline of Ignacio being undocumented, a, a storyline, and Sylvia, you as well, like it was handled with so much grace, but also with tremendous amount of humor. Um, so tell me about that experience for you. Well, it was interesting. We, we previous question was about how we got the part. At first, they wouldn't want to see me. They thought I was too young. I was 54. <laughs> I could have been three times your father, almost. Uh, we start young, Latinos. Um, uh, but, uh, Poppy was pesky. Um, but but um, this was um, amazing because I, I, I walked in. I think it was one of the easiest jobs I've ever gotten. I mean, on the way home. I got the call, and there was an offer, and boom. And then we, we were, I was on the show, and I, it was so unexpected, and I felt so honored and privileged because I knew about the Latino show, the, the Spanish show, and um, I felt, uh, reading the script, I felt a lot of responsibility, you know, uh, for this character um, to do it right. Um, and also I was challenged by the fact that it was both comedy and you know, and drama, and so, uh, and also very, it was very fulfilling that way, uh, for that reason, but it, it, it was, it was, um, that episode, I think that was most, uh, challenging for me, it was, uh, the, I still have, I still have that speech that I give my, to my two girls on my demo reel, because <laughs> I love, I love that speech in the, in the kitchen, when I tell you what happened, and yeah. with mom, etc. and, uh, and, and, you know, again, it was, it was just, I think we put a, a face on on immigration in a way that no one had done so before. Mm-hmm. Mark, um, back when Ugly Betty was on, there weren't a lot of teenage kids on TV who were out back when Justin came out. This is way before Glee. 
uh, before a lot of other shows, and it was a beautifully handled storyline over the course uh, over the course of, of the series. So talk to me about that, um, and Sylvia, if you can also talk about 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 that about the coming out storyline for Justin. Um, I mean, we were we're so fortunate to to have the time to tell the story and uh, give Mark give the character of Justin this arc that was played out, you know, not, wasn't rushed, wasn't like, it was, there was a lot of back and forth, there was the, there was the times when his dad didn't approve of him initially, where, where there's, there's the confusion where he's not accepting of himself, and so to have the opportunity to tell that story and not just get it out and rush it and to, and just humanize the dimension, it, and, and, and Mark just brought so many layers to it, I mean, it was, you know, in, in the pilot, he had a small role, and, and he had a couple funny lines, and he nailed those funny lines, but as we kept going, just to, to, to have someone who can give all those dimensions is what you want, and he delivered, and it was, it was really beautiful to see. Thank you. Um, <laughs> hi. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think that the, the best part about playing Justin for me was the fact that we were going through something, we were going through this this process at the same time. Um, I was kind of discovering myself and my sexual orientation at the same time that he was. So we really helped each other and guided each other along that road um, the entire way. And I think that the what you see on screen was so, so personal and so real to me. It, it wasn't, um, you know, it, I, I don't think that I had the understanding to realize, like, the impact that that, that story would have on other, on other young people um, or on people that, you know, wish that they had a character like that on when they were going through that process. So it wasn't about portraying some groundbreaking young... LGBT character. It was about um, acting a role that I was cast to play, and it just so happened that we were uh, experiencing something quite similar at the same time. I and mean, I, he was ele- 11 when we started. I think you were 10 when I met you, because you turned 11. No, I was 11, and then I turned 12. Oh, that's it. And we yeah. were... <laughs> can I tell <laughs> Yes, you can tell it. Yeah, tell it. Just tell it. Okay. Just tell it. So... <laughs> Also, we take full credit for raising. Him. Didn't we do a good job? We did a good job. Oh my God! Thank you. He's so fabulous. No, like you can't even imagine how fabulous he is. <laughs> but um, no, I mean it for real. Um, but he, we, we were shooting the pilot. It was the first day that we were the three of us, the four of us were all together, and we had gone. Out. <laughs> we had gone out to lunch. We were in Queens, and we're like, and America, America was twenty-one too. She was a baby, and she's like skipping, and she's like. Guys, this is so fun. You really, I mean, you look like my family. Like, Anna, you look like you could, you, I just feel like you're my sister. And, and Mark, you're, you're like my gay nephew. <laughs> and, and, he was just, and, he, and he just stops in his tracks and goes, Justin's gay? <laughs> and America was like, oh, oh um, Ha, ha, ha.
turns out she was right. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, and I, I, Mark and I haven't spoken about it, but we, as we, you know, the show continued and we're breaking stories and we're coming up stories for your character, and it was something as... We were trying to... The writers were trying to figure out how to, how to delicately deal with this because we, we felt like you were going through the same process as a character. And, and so for me, I know I'm, I didn't... There was an ethical dilemma. Like, I didn't want you to, to, to put you in a place that wasn't where you were ready to go. And so it was, we, were, we had a lot of conversations about this, but it always felt like you handled everything in an incredible, incredibly adult way. Okay. It was... Uh, yeah. But I think that the, in, in handling it in a delicate manner, I think that it, it, it really complicated... Um, and restructured this this idea of the coming out narrative of having it, you know, of, of having a coming out story be something so kind of intense and 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 almost violent in a sense of like having to kind of sit the family down and be like, I have to tell you something as if something's wrong with you. And I think that Justin was the first the first time that I realized, at least in his coming out story, that I didn't have to say those words in order for it to be understood. You know, I didn't have to say, I'm gay, in order for it to be implicitly understood. And, um, you know, I think that that's, that's really important. You know, we don't have to tell our parents when we're straight or when we, you know, want to go on a date with a woman. And I don't think that we should have to explicitly sit people down and tell them this story. Yeah, um... I don't know if you remember this, Marky, but um, Anna and I, um, as your mothers, we um, we would just be like, Anna would be like, oh, I want a gay son, I want a gay son so bad. And we would be like, oh, we love gays, we love, like, we, we just, like, overcompensated. And one time, Mark said to Anna, like, if I'm straight, will you guys still love me? <laughs> Like, we pushed you so far. And so it wasn't so far away from the episode where the Suarez family decides we're going to give Justin a coming out party. That way he's going to walk through the door and we're going to be like, we know you're gay and it's okay. (laughs) Which just seems like that's just what we did for four years was say that. But uh, but, uh, honestly, truly, 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 Mark handled that role and the burden of being a child, 12 years old, with journalists and photographers who are so terrible, yelling at him, asking him questions that you would never ask a 12-year-old. And and he just took it with such grace and, 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 you know, you can never look back and and know for yourself what you represented at that time, but, but you really you did magical work with what you were given. So special. And of the many fine pairings of characters, I feel like so many people, there were likely and unlikely pairings. I did, uh, I love with, with Michael and Mark with putting them together in, and uh, I love the line when uh, Mark, character Mark, uh, talks about Justin being recently hatched from the gay egg. <laughs> which is one of my favorite moments, and what a great dynamic about, like, let me tell you how it's done. And that was a dynamic that they started early on. I think uh, uh, Mark and Justin first met in episode four, 
they didn't shy away from from that dynamic, which hadn't really been on TV before, and and they and and they let it uh, they let it grow for four years. You know, uh, they, they would they would have we would have interactions peppered throughout the entire series, and uh, I think it was uh, it was brilliant that they started early and continued often in, in putting those two characters together. Rebecca. I mean, you were one of the first, if not the first, trans character on network TV. The first. The first. I mean, no biggie in 2016. In 2006, I mean, tell me about that. Well, I was also not there at the beginning. They had laid right. the pipe for this great mystery character who showed up in what, episode nine of the first season? 13. 13? Okay. <laughs> Um, and they called me and asked me if I'd be interested. I didn't hesitate for a second. I thought it sounded amazing. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, was, it hadn't been done before. It was a no-brainer. I played her as a woman. And uh, sort of paved the way for people like Candace Kane and Laverne Cox. And here we are today. It's amazing. Any pushback from the network? Um... <laughs> Be yeah, honest. I, mean, I think it, it was. I had the idea very early on, and uh, I think I was probably more hesitant about pitching it to them than once I pitched it. I think they were. What's interesting is, it was really about you know, if oh Rebecca Romain then. Absolutely. Like, well, I have yeah. a feeling it made it a little more palatable. Exactly. To the exactly. Exactly. Right. Which was. Which was great, you know, um, and you know, but thank God it paved, as you said, it's paved the way for. You it know, opened now, up some minds. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Which is wonderful. All right, we got to go shallow. I have to go back to shallow. We're getting heavy. We love. Sh- I mean, the clothing on Ugly Betty. Yeah. The clothing on yeah. Ugly Betty. The great yeah. Patricia Fields. Yeah. Let's just go down the line. Tell me your favorite outfit. A thrift shop sweater. <laughs> uh, retirement shoes. Oh. Yeah, Tony got a lot the, of cardigans. Ignacio got the yeah. short shrift on that. Yeah, um, it cost about $30, I think, for the entire season, my wardrobe. I always thought run. it was so funny that Justin, I mean, the Suarez family was not meant to have money in any regard, but Justin went through, like, all of season three wearing exclusively, like, Marc Jacobs sweaters. Um, like, wearing, like, Marc Jacobs sweaters with, like, a Margiela T-shirt underneath. We just thought that, it, that Betty was bringing them home. Girl. <laughs> oh, I thought we were having a private conversation. Uh, I couldn't even begin to pick a favorite outfit, but I do remember one that stands out to me, which was... <laughs> it was entirely banana yellow and I looked at when I went into the fitting I was like no no <laughs> no no I don't want to do that I mean yellow yellow and Pat's like what are you talking about <laughs> it's fabulous it's cutting edge it's <laughs> you're quoting her you can say it I, Pat it, used to say this thing and I'm quoting no. her so don't say it's me what it's what? It's a bad it's a word, but she word. said it, not us. Well, she would look Pat at Pat would look at you and be like, it's so cunty. You oh. look like a... That's what she would say. No, that's not how she yes. would say it. But, 
was not derogatory. No, it was when she was stumped. Especially with my outfits. It was when she outfits. was stumped and she would say, I don't know. I think it needs to be a little bit more cunty. <laughs> and she was right every single time. Every single time. Don't you remember, you'd walk into the, into the wardrobe room and she'd have all these racks of clothes. And I remember I walked in this one time and she had like all these things from some thrift shop. And I said, no, 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 Pat. The character is a very wealthy woman. And she said, shut up and take off your clothes. <laughs> and she proceeded to take one of those dresses and remember how she would take the things? We were just talking about this. She would cut off the arms. Her father had been a tailor. And so she knew how to redo stuff. She would take feather boas and wrap them around your neck and jewelry. And all of a sudden, there was your character. I mean, even the banana yellow. I mean, it was, it was truly, it was one of the most remarkable things that I ever, I ever experienced. It was extraordinary. One of, um, I told this story earlier, but uh, the, the, we were finding Betty in the wardrobe room before the pilot and and it was like ah what does she look like and we went through all these outfits and you know I I just didn't feel the character and she didn't feel the character and then we finally got into an outfit that we both were like yeah this could be it this could be it I tried on like 200 pairs of glasses that were on the table and then Kat's like Kat who's Kat Pat is like here put these on she takes her glasses off I put them on my face they're Betty's glasses those are, I, those are the glasses I wore for four seasons where I, Pat feels glasses. And Pat didn't care if it cost two cents or if it cost $2 million. It was, it was the look and the feel and did the character come alive. And Betty, trying to make someone look crazy and completely out of fashion, but also make them so fun to look at is, is a skill. That's not something anybody can do. And it's, personally, I feel like my character came alive because of what Pat contributed to to the sh- the whole show. And I have to say, like a shout out to Pat and 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 Becky, who's not here. Their collaboration. I mean, Amanda's outfits and the way Becky was able to sort of bring them to. I mean, the things that that Amanda wore was so bananas. But it was so it was. But it was so fabulous. I was so envious. I remember just being like, oh, it's a, it's a and it was like a, a, a Use the microphone. <laughs> they can't hear you. My anyway, I, I just have to say, because I thought, I thought uh, one of my favorite characters to look at was, was Amanda. Was this is what it was like on the set, okay? We just more leopard for Hilda. More leopard for Hilda. Zebra, leopard, zebra. Tits, hair, and animal prints. That's a, that's a life motto, honey. Uh, How about you, Eric? Um, No dresses for me. Uh, I did get to... We had to cut the suit so much. um, I won't go into the boring part of that, but one day I got to go to an actual um, tailor because I wanted to try building them from scratch, and I've never done that before, just picking bolts off the wall. But the the one quick funny story is that she'd always come... She'd walk in, you know, she had a lot of assistants that would help with the fittings. She'd walk in with a cigarette. She looked disappointed about something. She was mad at her dogs for doing something. <laughs> but she'd, 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 she'd do this thing. And she'd walk up and she'd always poke me right here. She'd poke me in the throat because if there was any gap between the collar of my shirt and my neck, 
she made him take it back and cut it closer so it was around my neck. She didn't like that space there. But all the suits that I wore were, I mean, I've never worn clothes like that before, and I had so much fun. I mean, Did you was, steal them? Uh, I, no, I mean, I, I stole a couple and asked, but then, but then ABC put everything up for sale after the show was canceled, and I bought all my suits at like... What? Like one-tenth the cost. Wait, what? That was the thing? I just stole yeah. Meanwhile, everything. Meanwhile, Michael, Yuri, your entire apartment is Ugly Betty Furniture. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> hey. I mean, I, I think there was let's a lot just of, be real with the fans, okay? There was, a lot of, there was a lot of furniture that fell off the truck at our house. <laughs> the statue of limitations on that. What is that? Ten, year, ten years? Yeah, I bought, I bought my suits. Wow. Yeah. We were told, I was told I couldn't buy anything, any of the well, clothes. they put them up so on an I. auction site. Did they really? VIP. Yeah, VIP auctions. Yeah. yeah, you just go and bid on them. <laughs> well, they were cheaper the way I got them. Yeah. <laughs> Ashley, I didn't want to buy anything. You, Ashley, you had some pretty amazing wardrobes too going on, like in you know in the fashion closet. I did, and I used to literally look forward to my costume fittings, and usually that's a wee bit boring for an actor to do the costume fitting. But Pat Field is just this legend. Yeah, she really does talk like that. And she would sit with her two little toy poodles and she'd go like, try the other one on. Take it off. And it, with anyone else, you'd be like, that's a little bit harsh. But you, but you just went with it and you just trusted her. And literally, it's like you were saying, some of it would be vintage charity shop, cheap shite. And some of it would be beautiful, vintage, proper designer, expensive stuff. And she would flip. I mean, it was it was her eye. The way she would put an outfit together was just amazing, amazing. Anyone else favorite outfits? Vanessa, you have to talk about your clothes, girl. I know. Well, I was waiting to. Are you you done? Okay. Uh, um, so Pat was more than just a stylist, and I hate when she just gets labeled as a stylist. Not only did her her background come from fashion construction, but she was also so bold in whatever she puts you in. You know, it's okay to mix metals. It doesn't have to match. As long as the structure and the lines made sense, the fabrics were the same uh, value, uh, no matter what colors they were, if they were as bright as each other, then they'd work. If they were this monochromatic, she'd make it work. So she was, she is an amazing Artist, absolutely, and can see and, and create magic on your body. What she did mostly with my stuff, which kind of defined my character, um, she ended up putting me in Terry Mugler, a lot of vintage Terry Mugler uh, suits. And Terry was huge in the early Is 90s. Terry here? <laughs> and I used to wear Terry Mugler when I was performing my music back in the 90s. And uh, thank you very much. So, uh, but she, she had people on her team that had sources in West Palm Beach, in the village, Upper West Side, that she knew women that collected these suits, and she'd call and she'd say, we need some suits, and Molly would go and talk to these divas, and she would bring a, a batch of suits, and whatever fit right, we would, uh, you know, alter toward me for, for my body, and these were one-of-a-kind suits that had cutouts and broad shoulders and peplums. And that really gave Wilhelmina her really distinct style, which is now knocked off 10 years later. You can see everything is keyholed and everything yeah. is padded shoulder. And that was Pat 
really going into the vintage back in the 90s. So she's amazing. For one, we're talking about just her being um, uh, creative. I had a pair of regular suede pumps. She took some, some fur pom-poms, snipped them off. She said, attach them to the back of your shoes. And in one particular scene, remember I had my pom-pom fur shoes. And it just made Wilhelmina different than everybody else. Crazy hats, but a hat would be really architectural and, and completely insane. But she'd pair it with an amazing full uh, jacket that was classic and gorgeous and elevate everything so you didn't look like a crazy woman, but you look completely unique. And I love her, and I think she's genius. And she's way more she's than amazing. a stylist. I, um, I, too, had a head-to-toe banana number. You did? Yeah. I had, a, I had something that was a, like a full banana suit. It was great. Um, and uh, uh, I, uh, they, they, they used to do, I mean, crazy stuff on me. I would have fittings for hours and hours. And we should, we should say, it wasn't just Pat. It, it was uh, Molly and uh, Paolo, Paolo and Jackie, Jackie yeah. who were her, like, team. And Paolo was, like, the, 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 the mark of the group and and so so Paolo, Paolo's doing empire right now ladies and gentlemen yeah, and and working it out and Jackie's doing younger so they they they've both gone on to do great things but um but uh I remember I, I would I had all, I had so many different kinds of ties either like a you know cravat or or uh, uh you know like you know bow tie or something and so there, there were so many times when Pat would come up and figure out what the tie was going to be if it wasn't just a regular tie and she'd have a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and she would be right up in my face Tying something around, just breathing. <laughs> and if she didn't like it, she would say, What is it saying? I don't know. What is it saying? But I think my favorite was the, the Mr. Peanut outfit that I wore one time where I had a cane and a top hat and a vest. And we walked through uh, we, 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 park. we walked through a park or something. Right? We walked through the park right by City Hall in New York. And shortly after that, I remember I was in LA for we were we were had already moved to New York, but I was in LA for something. And um, Silvio took me to a drink. We went to drinks, and I was like, "Oh, this is exciting!" You know, one on one time with the creator. And I was like, "Maybe he's going to tell me some dish about the character or or something inside." Like, this is going to be a really exciting storyline coming up. We had drinks, no, nothing. We was just like we just hung out and just chill, very cool. And then at the end of drinks, he said, oh, no more hats. <laughs> Pat, who's brilliant, she loved to get, she told me, she goes, I, I always try to sneak a hat or a choke or something in there, because I want me in the frame, and you guys only film here. So, and she would get, she, she lost it on me one day, because we we weren't featuring the shoes enough. So, so I had to, <laughs> she goes, why don't you do everything wider, everything's tight. I'm like, well, it's not about the shoes in this scene, <laughs> but uh, she's, you know, she, she's amazing, and she, she brought something, but sometimes, yeah, there was, there, we had a hat watch at times. I'm like, let's just... What, uh, about, <laughs> what about that story? Do you guys remember when uh, she left, when one of her tirades, she left a voicemail for somebody complaining? <laughs> Do you remember this story? She left... Victor, a voicemail saying, You still- guys don't know what you're doing. Yes. I'm telling you, blah, 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 blah. Okay, goodbye. But she didn't hang up. She, she would always keep her phone in her bra. In between, in her... And then yeah. she kept going. They kept, she was walking down the street with Paolo, and she was like, These people don't know what they're doing. They don't know how great they have it with me. And then, and then you hear in the voice, you hear her go, I can't fucking... Oh, hi. Hey, how are you? Hi. You look great. 
I still, I still, I still have that voicemail. Anybody wants to hear it? It's about five minutes long, but it is. That's really amazing. Long. I want to talk about the dialogue on the show. Um, my personal favorite line: Did you just gesture at me when you said Kwanzaa? That was Sheila Lawrence. Brilliant. Amazing. I mean, I, like every episode. That Christmas, I did a, a mug that said that for for Christmas and Kwanzaa. Perfect. I was wondering if you could all again tell me your favorite line that you got to say. If you remember, I know it's been a few years. Well, I've got one. There was one scene that I was doing where it was, there was something written and it was like, bollocks wanker. <laughs> and I was like, we don't say that kind no, no. of stuff you know on what British it was? television. You know what it was? What it was, was it? Wasn't it wankle me bum? Yeah, or wankle. some wankle me bum? <laughs> wankle... It no, was, there was, was one that was definitely, there was a bollocks and a wanker definitely involved. There was wanker. And I was like, do you realise wanker's quite a bad one in Britain to be saying on national television? But you guys bought it, so I was like, I'm going to embrace it. Wanker. <laughs> I loved it. It was brilliant. Bollocks, wanker. Oh, God. I think my first line ever in the show, I don't want flan, I'll get fat. Didn't you say something? What was your line in the pilot about J Lo? You came out, you brought me tea, and you said something oh, about oh, J Lo. Oh, um, uh, something about how like things like getting a job in a magazine is only. Oh, they don't. Those things only happen for people those like J Lo. Those things yeah. only happen for people like J Lo. Getting an assistant job in a fashion magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia, tell me about the writers' room. I mean, it must have been like some of the lines when you all came up with them. It must have been such a joy because they were so fun to watch. Um, it was, look, it was a great group of writers. I, I, I wish you know, some of them had been able to come today. But, um, yeah, we would, we would just laugh the whole day, you know? I mean, and then we'd realize, oh, Jesus, we have to turn the script <laughs> in two days. But it was, uh, it was an interesting mix. There was people that came from the drama world and, and who's, you know, one-hour world. So, so their experience tended to focus more on, on the structure and the story. There were people that came from, a lot of people from Will and Grace, a lot of people from, from half-hours, from sitcoms. And so they would just have these great zingers. And so it was this, this inter- within the writer's room, it was this great fusion of, of and, and that's what the show was. It, was a, it wasn't a drama, it wasn't a comedy, it was a, it was a dramedy. And, and the, the, where it best functioned was when we really kept that line, like, you know, balanced it very well. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. When you all look back on this experience, and I know just from talking to, to you all, it's such a special experience for all of you. Do you have a moment when you think about it that you're the most proud of? I was I wasn't say proud, but one of the funniest ones that was in our first season is when Mark and uh, and Wilhelmina get caught in Queens, and she's completely rude to the taxi driver Pradeep, and he kicks us out in the middle of Queens, and we have no money, and uh, we're we see some streetwalkers or ladies in the night, ladies of the night standing on the the corner, and I'm wearing a white fur, and we're all dressed up, and one of my favorite lines was. Uh, they come and try to approach me. I say, stop pawing my piece. And, uh, 
and we run into uh, a little church in some alley, and we're desperate, and I take off my heel and crack open the collection box and <laughs> rummage for the... But the situations that we were put in on an episodic basis were so exciting, because it's like, now where are they going to go? Now what's going to happen? Are we going to be able to play softball with, uh, with Naomi Campbell? I, and I had to take pitching lessons so I could actually pitch to her and not hit her. But those, these are the kind of things that, you know, I had a baseball bat one time. We're just going to let that lie out there. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not hit her. But I, the situations where you never knew where you're going to end up the, the following episode. And that was thrilling about what this show is unique compared to everybody else. And okay, that scene... Oh, oh. The line that you had after you opened up the collection box. Oh, poor people are so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. That scene with, with the, the women of the night. The, do you remember there was a real homeless guy who came into the? Who, who, yeah, no, who came into the scene and was like sitting there, and I was like, "Do you, do you know that guy?" <laughs> and you're like, "No, I don't know that guy." And then he like ran off. Um, I would say uh, to, to answer the pride question, he has a um, sad card now. By uh, the way, yeah, now a sad story. Um, when um, when Mark when my character uh, came out to his mother in the first season, played by Patty Lapone, she. Um, uh, as he was, he, uh, the, the 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 instigation for him to finally do it because he'd been lying to her all these years, and this is hilarious episode where Betty pretends to be Mark's girlfriend, and um and and we go to Queens and have dinner. My mom and I go to Queens and have dinner, and it was complete heaven. And as uh, as she's leaving, she's she's fed up and she's leaving, and I still haven't gotten the guts to come out. Um, Justin runs by and says, there's a Golden Girls Marathon on, or something. Uh, <laughs> and my mom, played by Patti Lapone, said, oh, and that boy, he's just so swishy. And that's what, that's the tipping point for Mark, for, for my character. And that's when I come out and I say, mom, open your eyes and look at your own swishy son. And I got a MySpace message. Remember MySpace? And um, I got a MySpace message from someone who said, um, I was watching that episode with my mom, and at the end of it, she said to me, I hope that if I had a swishy son, he wouldn't be afraid to say so. And that was like, I mean, you know, when that, when I, when I read, and I got lot, we all got lots of messages like that. You know, we, we, the show really touched people and, and really spoke to truths. You know, they, they never took the easy way out. You know, the easy thing, the easy TV happy ending thing would be for uh, Mark's mom to say, it's okay, I've always known, and I support you. But no, she walked out, and she never came back, ever. And that is truths to people. That, that, that's the way it is for some people. Just like, uh, just like Justin coming out to his family, his Latino family, might not have gone the way that it did in our show. Uh, for many people, it, 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 it wasn't that. But, but, we, but they never took the easy way out. The writers never did the, the easy story. They always told the truth, and I think that's why it touched so many people. Speaking of, uh, yep, so, good. Uh, speaking of not an easy story, one of my, one of the stories that really, really stayed with me was when Betty and Mark were vying for one position on the, um, what was it called? Yeti? Mode. Yeti. Yeti, the Young, Young Editors, Editors Training, Training Initiative. Initiative. And they're, like, competing, and they hate each other. And um, that was maybe one of my favorite outfits, to harken back 
that episode. That was a good one. The beret, the red beret. Oh, yeah. Um, and Betty gets it. And she walks over to Mark. And, you know, they've always had this kind of playful love-hate thing. Mostly hate, a little bit of love. Uh, and, 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 and Betty's proud. And she's just like, well, I did it. Like, I got it. And, and Mark says something like, yeah, well, of course, you're the Latina. Like, you're exactly what they were looking for. He, like, cuts her down that she got the job because she was Latina. And it was one of the first times that, like, Mark said something that actually hurt Betty. Because it was, he, he said all kinds of mean stuff to her, and she could always brush it off. But that comment really cut her down and made her feel so small. And, and it was hard because... I loved the character Mark, and I had such weird feelings about that. But of course, he was at a place where he, you know, needed to make himself feel better by saying that comment. And you know, they didn't wrap it up in a pretty bow, and they didn't say like, you know, Betty didn't ever get the validation that no, she didn't get it because she was the Latina, or you know, she got it because she was the best. They just kind of let that be there. And I remember that being an episode that really always felt hard and always just stayed with me. I was really proud of that. And I think probably rang true for a lot of people in, in their experiences. Was that something that in the writer's room you, you, you felt like, you know what, let's not make this all, you know, tied up so neatly. Let's just leave some of the world out there. Yeah, I mean, I think the first half of the episode is played almost like a straight ahead, like uh, spy versus spy comedy. You know, you guys are competing. And then it sort of shifted, and it became, yeah, you won, but it wasn't fair. And, and then it shifted into a lot of conversations, and you had the conversations with your family. I remember the conversations with, with Hilda. And so, yeah, we wanted to almost put out all, you know, the sides of, of this issue, and, and it doesn't, there was no neat you know, ribbon. There wasn't a need to. I think it, was, it played realistically and, and honestly and raw. Since you're all so humble about your own great performances, what's something that one of your cast members did that blew you away? Oh. Well, Anna, Anna's episode uh, at the beginning of season two when uh, we think her husband is still alive. Santos, we think Santos is still alive for the entire episode. Season one ends with him getting shot, and episode one of season two, um, he's 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 bandaged and, and they're, they're lying in bed and, and, and he's he's fine and, and they're having a wonderful time. And by the end of the episode, we realize that she's been imagining the whole thing. She was incredible. Thank you. I've been crying all day. In a good way, but... Anyone else? Oh, God. There's so much. I, I think... Um, I think also one of the episodes was the... Um, what was the prom? The homecoming queen oh. episode? Oh, yeah. um, watching... Watching Mark. I mean, really, the whole sort of... The whole evolution of watching him become this amazing person. But I thought that episode was incredible. And it was hard for you, I remember. And it was... Um, it was really beautiful work. Hard, hard for you. What made that episode? It was the um, it was the episode where Justin um, 
as a joke, they they not they dub him Homecoming Queen. Right. And I think it was hard because in that moment I wanted him to be so hurt, and he was so hurt, but to be so explicitly hurt, and he turns it around and kind of makes this this joke about it and and dedicates it to his mother. And um, I mean, it's just I mean, it's 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 hard. I mean, I think that. I don't know the entire the entire journey with Justin was was hard to see him be ridiculed for nothing other than his his identity. Um, it's you know it's it's quite difficult to see anyone be ridiculed for just being themselves. Um, so that's that's probably why it was so hard. I want to talk about the finale. What a great finale um, to a series. I think. When I went back and, and before this panel and, and rewatched some episodes, the moment where uh, the word ugly disappears from the screen, I was just like weeping. And, and it was such a beautiful moment. Was, was, was that something that was always the plan? Did you sort of see that early on? No. <laughs> it wasn't, but, uh, you know... You're in a series. I, I didn't know what the ending was going to be when I started. A lot of people were like, oh, I know. I, most part, anybody that says that they know how the show series is going to end is their line. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it really came about from, again, it was an organic thing. It, it felt, uh, by, the, by that time, and she'd had her makeover, but it was, it, by, that, by the time that we did the makeover episode, it was... It was almost so besides the point. It was, you know, the point of the show wasn't about... There was so much talk, oh, ugly Betty, or what are we saying about this? No, the point is, what, what do you... What does a person think when they hear those words? And, and the reality is, look beyond this, you know, the, the title, the name. And so, at the very end, you know, it's... The word fades because it... It never really should have been there if we're really talking about who she is. Um, but it got your attention, and that's the first thing people see. But the reality is it was a, a, a perception of a person, which is what we end up doing. We end up putting these labels. So it was the idea was let's, let's rip that off. Did, did the network not get a little bit frightened of the use of the word ugly? Uh, are we at the beginning? Is that uh, right? They, they wanted to call it Betty the Ugly. <laughs> like her last name? Hey, I'm Betty I, Ugly. I think they were thinking like Alexander the Great or I, I don't know. I never got it. And they, they actually, we were in New York for the upfronts. And uh, at that point, you'd wake up and look at the newspaper <laughs> to see what's going on. We didn't, I didn't know what, the, what day we were going to be we, you know, programmed. And I look, and we were set to be on Friday initially, and the title of the show was Betty the Ugly. They didn't, they didn't tell me. <laughs> and, and so we, that's what we were for the first, for a couple months before we started, um, before we premiered. And I just kept... On every script, I just kept putting Ugly Betty, Ugly Betty. We just refused to call it that. So. I heard a story, America, I don't know if this is true, but that when you guys were initially on Friday and you walked up to Steve McPherson and you were like, if you like our show so much, put us on Thursday. Did that actually happen? I don't remember. The yes. tone Anna's is that nodding. Did... So... Yeah, I, I was there. I was at the, uh, the upfront. I mean, it sounds like something I would do. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, mm-hmm. he, he kept talking about how we were testing so well. Right. You know, and, and also the critics were crazy about it. I think it was, uh, it, it was at one of those critics. Uh, TCAs. TCAs, yeah. And, and, and you said, well, if, if we're doing so well, why not put us on Thursdays? And that's what happened. Yeah, it was a good idea. I had a good idea. <laughs> worked out. It worked she out. She was bold. One of the special things we would do also as a cast, not only do we spend lots of hours together, and in an hour drama, most people come in, shoot their scenes, and leave. We had so much scene work together as Suarez, Mode, the crossover, but also on the nights that we would actually see the next episode for, for our meal, we'd all gather, we'd all sit in our chairs, we would sometimes have a catered meal, sometimes it would be Mexican night or a Hawaiian night or whatever, so we have a themed dinner, and we'd watch the episode together. So even if we missed uh, someone else shooting, we get a chance to see the whole show before it came out. And that was one of our really special times, don't you think? Yeah, yeah I think... With the I think crew, was, too. With the yeah. crew. And, the crew. I, and I, I think what you said yeah. before, Vanessa, when we were doing the interview, I think it was for Good Morning America, maybe, uh, but you were talking about how it was, all of us being together, it wasn't, it was like a theater company. Mm-hmm. And being like a theater company, everybody was there and everybody was part of this ensemble and everybody was invested in everybody else's story and what the story was going to lead to and where you might fit. And the thing that was always so fascinating to me about this is that this piece was a piece about service. It was all about service to these characters and to all of you who have been so appreciative of the work that we've done that you cared about what we were giving you. And you could see and you could feel what was the energy of this connection that we all had that was like this theater company that was coming across through the television set and out into everybody's home. And you saw a story about people and their families and these incredibly flawed human beings that really were wanting to be somewhere else more always wanting to be who they knew they could always be their authentic selves and I think that comes across in this show in a way that I think is really quite remarkable but I think it came from that whole experience of us doing a lot of things together yeah. and not just being separated yeah. when you're on Broadway you show up yeah. at the same time you all warm up at the same time and then you start the show very similar to how we we were all if we weren't even in one episode we'd be shooting another episode so there would be a lot of you know work that we'd all be at the same time all together every day and we really became the ugly betty company and sometimes you would do incredibly long tracking shots where they didn't cut the camera and god forbid you were the last person with a line at the end of the shot <laughs> shitting yourself in case you were the one that messed up <laughs> like that oh, that's right oh no 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 no, no. I love that you mentioned that you guys were like a theater company and almost like a musical theater company. There was so much talk about, like, is there going to be a musical episode early on? Do you remember that? One of of the regrets. We didn't get a chance to do it. Like, give me a song title. Tell me, or like a a couple. Like, what was in your, what was going on in that mind of yours? It didn't didn't even go that far. I mean, we, um, we, we started having the conversations. It was, it just... It was a, I don't know, I, I can't even tell you right now what, why we couldn't do it. I know, and I know that there was a money, a budgetary thing, which was, you know, always a, a factor. But I think we kept saying, you know what it was? We moved to New York, and that was a big deal. And then 
by that point and then the following year, it, it just ne we never got to it. We never got to the musical episode. So we, we did do that New York, New York um, number. What was it? Um, oh, it was like a promo the commercial for four at the, uh, at the upfront thing on it. At the upfronts. Yeah, at the upfronts. Oh, with no, the Rockettes. Yeah, yeah. Remember the Rockettes yeah. on the radio? Oh, that was, City was New York. That was um, one from a car One line. singular sensation. Yeah. Yep. But there was another. We did a promo where we, we did... Um, we sang New York, New York, New but it York, was a promo, right. yeah. They played it somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I thought but there that, was I thought so the much singing on set, like oh. nonstop singing. And then we'd have the like guest stars like Patti Lapone, and we would Forget just like, sit there and be like, sing this, sing that. How about Adele? You were the first one to bring Adele on. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, let's talk about she some of the guest Adele stars. Fan. Shakira. Well, we made Adele famous. We just want to... <laughs> You're welcome, Adele. You're welcome, Adele. Adele. Well, Betty You still was haven't so... returned my email, by the way, so it's cool. Betty was so cutting edge. Yeah, like you, uh, Vanessa said, I mean, Betty was like, she was the Adele fan back before, like, any of us. Yeah, that, that, that was me. That was America. Was it? Yeah. Because I, I had her album 19, and, um, and anyway, she was on SNL the night that um, Sarah Palin was on SNL, remember? And I went... And I was like sitting there singing every word to songs that people didn't know. And some guy's like, do you want to go meet her? And I was like, I'm going to die. And I went down and I was like, ah! And she's like, it's only Betty! <laughs> and because we were like, that was a really good accent, right, Ashley? That's what you were thinking? Amazing, amazing. Yeah, thank you. And I was like, come be on our show! And she's like, I would love to. And then she like, came, she came and did our show. It was amazing. It's so cool. There were so many great guest stars on the show. Anyone have a favorite? Well, Lapone was pretty good. Patty Lapone was pretty awesome. And Bernadette, Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters. Christine Baranski. Christine I liked, I liked your dentist. Bernadette Peters. Oh, Jesse Tyler Jessie, Ferguson. Yes. Yeah. Kristen yes. Chenoweth. Kristen Chenoweth. Oh, uh, Octavia Spencer. Oh. Yeah. Academy Award. Nacho. Nacho. She goes, I just, I don't go blonde for just anybody. <laughs> Bernadette Peters. Yes. Oh my God! And I and and Adam Rodriguez, Freddie Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who else? Chris Gorham. Yo, Lucy Liu. You got to. Oh, you Lucy Liu. Eric right. got to kiss so many hot women. <laughs> Selma Hayek. Selma on the Adriana show. Lima. Uh, Gabriel Adriana Union. Lima. Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay. <laughs> Brooklyn Decker. <laughs> Who? It's Stuart. She she, she did, did off episodes. camera work for me. Let's let's let's. let's. Is this ATX after dark? <laughs> let's move on. Yeah, I love how the show when and in the final episode in the series finale, Betty's in London, um, and Daniel shows up. And, and I love how the show ended, that there was no, it was kept open-ended. Is something going to happen? The show was so beside the point of, quote-unquote, getting this guy. It was about so, way beyond that. It was, but what do you all think happened? I mean, do you think they ended up together? I love, you're like, it's not about the romance, but did they end up together? <laughs> um, no, I do truly think that, that it was a special new kind of central relationship on a show it was about a different kind of love and it was about and it wasn't about this ugly girl 
quote unquote, looking for some guy to say she was good enough or to make her feel good about herself. If anything, Betty showed him that he was good enough, you know? And yeah, snap, snap, snap. Um, and, you know, and I always thought of that last scene as, as Daniel, um, you know, coming back to, to say thank you because he, he, he was, because he, you didn't say bye to me when I left. You didn't say bye to me when I <laughs> left New York and you were mad at me for going to get a better job. Why were you so mad at me? Because things were just starting. They were just starting. But Hulu's going to pick us up for a two-hour special and yeah. then we're going to find out. That's not true, but if we tweet it... Oh, my God. Like, every phone just lit up in the audience. Everybody, everybody here, take out your phone. Hashtag Betty... What, what, what is our hashtag? Betty Reboot Hulu... Oh, we won't think of... Oh, is it... It should be Ugly Re- Betty. Reboot ugly Betty. Betty. We don't want to think it's ugly some other Betty. Betty. Well, we'll think of something before the That's panel's over. Betty White. And then we're all going to hashtag and tweet it out, and then we're going to get Hulu to buy a two-hour special but so we can... <laughs> Back to work. But two moment. hours. But you guys You're getting it short shift. There's a lot more stories. Yeah. It's a pilot. It's a pilot. It's a pilot. You guys could really make that happen. Let's just say, I mean... On this very stage a year ago, the cast of Gilmore Girls was here at ATX. Just saying, something happened after their ATX panel. Uh, they'll be on Netflix for four movies later this year. What was their hashtag? Uh, it was also Betty's reboot Hulu, oddly enough. Maybe it's hashtag Hulu bring back Betty. Yeah. That's good. Hulu bring back Betty. Hulu, bring back Ugly Betty, just in case they think of that other Betty show. They're going to think Betty... uh, Betty White. Betty White. White. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hulu, bring back Ugly Betty. Do it now. Take your phones off. Hashtag. Betty White was on Ugly Betty. 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 I slammed her fingers in my door. (laughs) Where do you all think your characters would be for this inevitable Hulu reboot? Where are your characters now? What are they doing? Let's, like, go down the line. Exact same spot. <laughs> no, no, I think we'd be at Mode UK. Oh. We, we cross the pond. Oh, okay. And take shit over there. Oh, I like that. Let's do it. <laughs> Good. Getting released from prison. <laughs> uh, back in the sanitarium. <laughs> well, I think I've got a 10-year-old child, haven't I? But we've been hanging out in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. But did you move to the UK and stayed there? Hell, you're probably living with me. Did you not? <laughs> Wait, Ashley, are you saying you did husband. not watch the finale of the show? <laughs> I was it's back news in to Britain. What show? <laughs> Extras. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, someone asked me that out, outside, and I think because of the effect of Betty on Daniel that he asks Alexis to take over the magazine and maybe heads off into something more meaningful, philanthropy. You just happen to have an outline with you right <laughs> by, like you, you're pitching the show. Um, I feel like, okay, I've really thought, I have thought about this. Um, I feel like, okay, so... Um, 
so, okay. So we <laughs> fade in. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I think that it's been six years, maybe seven, depends on how long, who, when does Hulu want to pre-premiere? And um, I think that Betty has been in London for six years and now she's coming home. That's what I think. Uh, I think Hilda probably had another baby with Bobby. And since they were moving to Manhattan, maybe she... She either opened her salon, you know, probably uptown, um, or maybe she started her own, like, skincare line. <laughs> or, like, a makeup, you know, like, maybe she had... Dream bigger, baby. Dream bigger. <laughs> that's, that's big, right? Okay. Remember Roxanne, Roxanne Rizzo? Roxanne Rizzo, exactly. Maybe Justin is finishing fashion school at the new school or Central St. Martin's or something. I am uh, cleaning, cooking, and doing laundry for my family. Uh, He's got a new car. Only Latino man on the planet to do that, actually. Uh, and, 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 but I'm on, I'm part time. Did you marry Lauren Velez? Yes. Yes! Yes, and I'm doing laundry for her, too. Um, uh, did you uh, have another baby? Uh, Ew. Oh. Yeah, maybe. Uh, no, Bobby, but I, um, no. <laughs> because then uh, you're not going to be the baby anymore. No, no. I, I, I want you to come back and take over mode, and uh, and I'll be the head chef at mode. <laughs> Part time. Silvio, do you have? I mean, in the years since the show's been off, do you kind of have you always? been keeping a little tally of storylines in your head of what, what might be? Yes. <laughs> uh, though I will say that being here with everybody and listening to these ideas, it's, it's kind of uh, refreshing it. Here's the only thing I know for sure. If we were to do something, I, it would be a dream, but everybody on the stage would have to be involved, and Becky Noon, who's not here. So... All right, can we get a verbal commitment? I mean, In. it took 20 minutes for everyone to say yes to my email to be at ATX. <laughs> like, yeah, I think they're going to be at the reunion movie. Yeah. So are there, I mean, are there talks? Are there like... This where? is the talk. Right, okay, this is the talk. Okay. Yes. Hashtag Hulu bring back ugly Betty. Already did it. I want to see all of your thoughts. I love it. So and many not just the movie. Start with the movie, Poppy. Dang. All right. <laughs> As a pilot. All right, I'm in. I want to open it up to some audience questions. You guys are amazing. <laughs> Don't be shy, people. Not so much have a question as a comment. And um, I was a hospice nurse, so I am still. But um, during the 90s, when uh, in Seattle, when many beautiful gay young men uh, passed up, passed before my eyes, and uh, a lot of families found out that uh, their son was gay because they were dying, and uh, and then I, as a mother, got to have the very millennial experience of my son coming out to me in the very millennial way of sending me a text. <laughs> he said, uh, I think I'm gay. And I said, think or are. 
And he said, R. I said, okay. <laughs> I love you. I got to go to a meeting right now. And uh, I'll talk when we get home. And, you know, it, and it's been kind of like a no big deal thing. And uh, anyway, it's just nice how TV has been a, a way to change the uh, mindset of a lot of people who were close-minded or to see that they're just people. And um, anyway, thank you. You're a good mom and a good person. Hi, um, I just had a quick question. I was curious what you guys thought, um, why it's so hard to have Hispanic families on television. I mean, ever since you guys, I think maybe the next show, Jane the Virgin, has been the only successful show to ever do it. And so I'm just curious as to what you guys think is the reason behind that. I, I, I would have to say that, as we heard Silvio say earlier, he wasn't trying to break boundaries. He was writing what he knew. And we were just lucky enough that they found a creative voice that had this experience. And I think a big part of seeing ourselves on screen is getting people more diverse um, experiences and voices um, in, in the writer's room and, and, and creating and telling these stories. You know, it's, it's also not always the most authentic experience to, to have, um, you know, a room full of, you know, non-minority people writing the minority experience. And, and w when it works in this authentic kind of organic way, it's usually because they picked an authentic voice to tell it. And so, you know, if we're not seeing the stories on screen, it's because we're not getting the people to tell those stories, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, look, I think part of it is the people running, the people making the decisions aren't necessarily the, the people that are represented uh, on the screen. And so, you know, there is a, it could be a disconnect there. But I think the other part is, you know, there is a, a, a dearth and, and, and whether of, of, you know, diverse voices. You know, I think whether it's because they're not given the opportunity or, or there's not as many. I mean, I've been actually trying to figure out why. Why isn't there more? I mean, I, part of me thinks sometimes, there, you know, I know my family was, you know, very much encouraged me to pursue my passion, but I know a lot of friends who, who are first generation Latin American, and you know, they are told, do the, go for the, the money, go for the thing that is very secure, don't, uh, you know, the arts is, is oftentimes a, following your passion is, is, is not necessarily encouraged, it's not, it's more of a, a dream. There's almost, there is something to that line of, of you know, things like that don't happen unless you're J-Lo. I think, I think part of it is people need to be given the opportunity. I think part of it, I think there's people, you know, not enough people necessarily are willing to take that risk. And I, I hope most more people do. Um, America, I just want to follow up, and it's a, it's a great question. Um, Gina Rodriguez, a wonderful actress on Jane the Virgin, has said that like her dream is for the character of Ugly Betty to somehow come onto her show. Any chance we'll be seeing that? I mean, if she could get the CW and ABC to like shake hands, sure. But that's that's a tall order. I mean, I would love. I mean, I would love to bring. I would love to. I guess wear Betty's. Well, not braces, because she doesn't have braces anymore. Um, I would well, love she to... may have an accident. She might. <laughs> They're Invisalign, yeah. though. When, when, the, when the ugly faded away in the season finale, she then tripped and fell and broke all her teeth. 
<laughs> then I had to get braces back again. Uh, I mean, that would be so fun, uh, but I don't know that that could happen. <laughs> did you keep like the, the braces once they, did you keep any like moment, like the set of the glasses or anything from? I kept the poncho mm-hmm. and the glasses. Um, I think I like stomped on the braces when I was done with that. <laughs> Did you ever try them on? No, I hated those. No, things. no, no, not the braces. Did you ever like put on the poncho at home sometimes and you're like, <laughs> that's for me to know. <laughs> Good. Hi. Um, for any or all of the actors, if you could have spent an episode or a day playing a different character, who do you think would have been the most fun to play uh, and why? I think I would have liked to have played Judith Light's character. <laughs> And I would do the laundry. (laughs) I think it would be harder for you than for me. (laughs) Amanda. Yeah, Yeah, I think I would would toss up between Amanda or Wilhelmina. I would be Hilda. Because I've got the worst Latina accent in the world. (laughs) And they just laugh at me. (laughs) I would be Mark. I go with Mark or Amanda. Oh. Yeah. I like Hilda too. Yeah, me I too. Hi, Poppy. Hi, Poppy. Yeah, Hilda. <laughs> By the way, a shout out, even though Becky is not here, Mark and Amanda as a duo. I think one of the great TV duos of all time. I mean, Michael, did you just have the best time, the two of you bouncing off each other? We share a brain. And I have it today, so. Um, But she, uh, yeah, that was like one of those chicken and the egg things. We, we, our friendship kind of came from the characters and the characters kind of came from our friendship. We immediately became, we sort of just glommed onto each other and we're still really close. I mean, if you guys couldn't tell, we're all still really close. And the, the strangest thing to me about this is that it doesn't feel like any time has passed. At all. I feel like this is the same panel we did when the show came on at the TCA. I mean, it feels exactly the same. The dynamic feels, it doesn't feel like any time has passed. It feels like we could go to work tomorrow. Yeah. And, and, you know. Hulu, hashtag Hulu. Hulu yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got our shirt. We love your shirt. Good. Um, you guys can't see, but this lovely lady who's about to ask a question has Betty's Guadalajara poncho in T-shirt form. I want one. Did you make that? No. That's a thing? I, no, I, I bought it a long time ago. I dressed up as Betty for Halloween when I was back in high school. Like, so, um, it's awesome. But So y'all were speaking earlier about how ugly fades away at the end of the finale. What are some of the big take-home messages y'all hope generations later on will continue to keep getting from the show regardless of whether they watch it 20, 30, 40 years later? Being true to your authentic self. Yeah. Uh, And and I would say also for young women that uh, they really know and understand and get inside themselves deeply that their beauty comes from someplace else that has absolutely nothing to do with the way they look or the way the culture tells them that they have to look. And I hope that we really take that message away in, in, in a big way. And, 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 and America has talked about that for such a long time. And that also, that 
the other, the ones that we shun and push away, and particularly in the LGBTQ community, that we begin to understand that the bigotry is our own, that it is not about the person, and that we stop and that we, we end the bigotry and we end the shunning of the other. And I think that's been a big message for Betty, uh, the, the, the other. And I think it's about, you know, Mode obviously gave us this very fun, sexy uh, uh, environment to play in. And yes, it was camp and catty and, and bitchy and fabulous. But there was something about this kind of, this, this um, a juxtaposition of the Suarez's from Queens and the world of Mode crashing up against each other and and Betty's kind of hero's journey to be how do I how do I face this world this culture and stay true to what makes me valuable and what makes me me and I think that's a huge just metaphor for what we all deal with going into life every day is so much culture so many definitions so many expectations coming at us and how we choose to engage with them is only up to us and you know the the power that you have to find to 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 see it engage with it even love it even enjoy it but don't let it define you and don't let it change you i i just wanted to add one little thing about um the latino family in queens that for me, it was so um, powerful, the message of how important family is um, in terms of defining who we are. And I think that is intrinsic to Latino culture, that Latino culture, you know, uh, we are defined by family, we, and we, we are dedicated to um, defining it. And, um, and, and the fact that we were portrayed in, in multidimensional ways we were, we were flawed, we were funny, we were courageous, we were weak at times, strong at times. I mean, I, I just loved um, the way that we were portrayed as, as people and as a family. And uh, that's, I think, one of the things that I'm most proud of because I think it set a new paradigm for how Latinos should be written and how should they, they should be portrayed. Um, and, I, and I'm just, you know, so, so frustrated because I've been an actor for 40 years now and I think it's one of the few times when we've seen that happen uh, and, and yet it, it, it fails to be emulated you know? uh, and I don't know why because it, it was very successful um, uh, in the way we did it so um, that's, that's um, I think that, that for me that's the most po- one of the more powerful messages of, of, uh, of the series. But also in the world that we're living in, the attributes that seem to be the ones that people think are great are like what you look like and how thin you are and how, you know, people taking selfies and looking a certain way. And it's things, it's kindness and compassion, which I think are so important and they're desperately overlooked. Nobody, nobody goes, oh, which one's she? She's the kind girl. It's like, you know, she's, she's the really good-looking one. She's the tall one. She's the sexy one. But to be the kind girl, I think that's the one that you really want to be. And that's who Betty was. And, you know, that should be applauded. And one, of the, one of the most fun episodes for me was when Daniel ended up at uh, the Suarez's house for Christmas. 
it just felt like, you know, it was funny that the, you know, the, the white male is the outsider, and yet in that environment, he was healed by uh, what he couldn't get from his own family that the Suarez has had. It was a really powerful episode for me, and also being, you know, being a type of older brother character to Justin in that episode, it really resounded with me. That was probably... I think we just have time for, like, maybe one more question. Go ahead. Um, my question is actually maybe for Eric and uh, Silvio. I was just um, wondering if there was maybe some part of Daniel's journey towards becoming a better man that you felt that you didn't have time to explore. Like, there were so many different um, milestones that he had, like uh, raising his son, who I guess didn't really turn out to be his son, but still, like, the, the experience <laughs> of it. Um, and also, like... Uh, his relationship with Molly and the fact that he was, you know, feeling that he was ready to step up and make that move, even though it didn't work out, it just showed so much of his character and becoming more um, molded. So I was wondering if there was maybe some other, like, uh, kind of a part of that journey that you felt you didn't get a chance to uh, go into that you may you might have liked to and that you might have wanted to write. Not to sound cliche, but um, there was something about the upbringing that Daniel had and such a dysfunctional family. Uh, <laughs> The, but, the butler was terribly mean, is what I meant. Sorry. I, th- I felt like the ending for me was, uh, for Daniel, was the beginning, really. Because uh, he really saw Betty as an equal through and through. I believe for the first time where, let's see what happens, is, was the promise of the ending. It was a new beginning, and I feel like, yes... There's a whole lot. He, he learned how to, how to not only access his feelings, because he couldn't with that father that he had, but also Betty taught him how to love unconditionally. And the tools that he gained through their relationship and the love that he felt for and from her armed him in a way so that he could go on and try that again, try to fall in love again, try and start a family. As, I mean, the... Any direction, just like Betty started out when she walks away, it's the possibilities are limitless. That's how I felt, um, Daniel. That's some deep thinking, Eric. Wow. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Go ahead. The eggs a la Hilda recipe, though, is there like a. Can you text that to me? Oh, what? <laughs> the what? The eggs a la Hilda recipe. Oh, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> we have a thing. We have a thing. I don't know how to make eggs a la Hilda. Jalapenos. Cheese. Onions. Salt. Okay. Um, my question is for Rebecca and Eric. I just wanted to know a little more about um, how you formed your brother-sister relationship and maybe any funny memories from when you were in that competitive um, episode era. We it had was so fun. Much fun. It was so fun. I think probably fighting over the chair was my single favorite, like, yeah. f- most fun sight gag to do ever. Yeah. We just it was it was it was so fun. I mean, making Victor, um, our director, laugh was was I think one of the most fun things about that. Um, well, I think I think as we got to know each other as actors, uh, it was. The, you know, the estrangement that the brother, sister, and the, the betrayal that Daniel felt, really, because he had to mourn the death 
of his brother and and also at the same time process the fact that he's not a he anymore uh, and the whole world turning upside down. So as we sort of got to know one another as actors, I felt like the, the characters were unfolding as Silvio and the other writers were creating that. So I think it was a, a pretty organic process. But I felt like I also went back into brother mode with you sometimes, Absolutely. which also, I loved getting in your face sometimes and still being your big brother. It was so fun. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Yeah, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. <laughs> And I also thought it was it was very moving how with the you know at a certain point Daniel kept referring to Alexis as he and it was and it was a really big deal and then has that moment where he refers to his sister as she and it was a very important moment. Yeah, it's funny. I just came off of a, a set where there's someone going through an operation and it's it's impulse. I mean, you keep experiencing these moments that we addressed years and years ago. It's really interesting because it defines us as people as we struggle with perceptions again. It's, you know, a recurrent theme, obviously. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, hi. First of all, it's amazing to be in front of all of you. My little sister and I <laughs> traveled here, and we really just watch the show every week. We still go back to it. Um, and now as I'm working... I see so many of these characters behaving in such ways that it's, I get advice from them in a way. <laughs> so what we really wanted to know is, to all the cast members, what's one piece of advice that you think is something that um, you've carried with you throughout your life? From, from the show or from... Just anything. Mm -hmm. People always used to ask me when I was growing up in a small town in Scotland. <laughs> Who, 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 was, who did I want to be? Who did I want to be like? And I always found it a bit difficult to answer that question. And then I realized when I grew up that I didn't really want to be like anybody else. I wanted to be me. And when I realized that there's actually nobody more unique than you, just be you because you are unique. Um, I think my mother um, had the, the advice that I... Well, I listened to all of her advice because she's amazing, but um, <laughs> she has something she calls the three-day rule, which me... And it, it can apply to anything, but it usually in my world applies to, like, if something really hideous happens or if I'm furious at somebody... Um, to just give it three days. The first day you can be angry. The second day you sort of can like mellow out, and then the third day you can actually process it. So, in, so for me, really, that's worked out for my life. Um, has been the three-day rule uh, on so many different levels. But anyway, I, I'll give myself three days to, to fucking mellow out. You know, <laughs> it takes me that long to mellow out. <laughs> You know, uh, for Ignacio, I, 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 um, I thought about this a lot, but I, I feel that it's, um, it's really about, you know, what really makes you happy in life. And Ignacio taught me that, that it's not about just taking care of Ignacio. It's not about me. I think that Ignacio was fulfilled and, and made happy, satisfied by the fact that he was there for other people, for his family. 
and and he was a happy guy, <laughs> and and he didn't have a lot, you know. He wasn't. He didn't have money. He didn't have, you know, a big house or, but he had his family, and the fact that he dedicated himself to his family uh, fulfilled him, and and in very simple yet deep and and satisfying way. So I I, I really think that's that that was a great lesson that I learned from my character and from the show. I would say one thing that I learned from, from this experience of this family that you see up here um, is that you, you, have to, you have to be in the moment. You have to live what's in front of you right now because you don't know, you know how long it's going to be around or how much it's going to change or whether you'll have the friendship and the love forever. And, you know, when the show ended... I don't know about these guys, but I, I went into, like, a deep depression because it was like losing a family, you know, that you saw every day. Actually, I know a couple of you went through depression, so. Um, um, Let's hear it for depression. <laughs> yeah, hey, depression, what, what? And, and honestly, like, I think a part, of, a part of why when we all get together, we start crying, which we did. You can see it on Good Morning America on Thursday. We cried. Um... Why we cried is because there's always like a little piece of me. I'll speak for myself. Uh, there's always a piece of me that feels like that still doesn't want to let this go. That still doesn't want to let Betty go and this family go and this experience go. And, and just knowing that they feel the same way makes it a little bit easier to move on. You know, knowing that like they're going to have other casts, but they're never going to love them as much as they love us <laughs> makes me feel a little better. And just knowing that, like, that loss and that pain is just always going to be there. And to, to just get used to it and get friendly with it and be like, oh, yeah, that thing I lost that I wish I'd never lost, that still sucks. And yet I got to have it. And that was so amazing. And I feel like that's what I learned from, and now I'm going to cry, this experience. How, how, did, how did you all, I mean, was it, was it one of those... Uh, like what America was saying was it like oh god this is I don't know how I'm going to get through this moment for I, you all I was going to stop acting I took a job for the BBC and moved my family to South Africa I was that just because you work for the BBC doesn't mean you're stopping acting <laughs> have you done a job for the BBC before I most certainly have well they don't pay that's true <laughs> but we have our dignity not that you don't, Eric. Uh, for, me, for me, it felt like a plane crash. Like the whole thing crashed and I lost these people. Temporarily. You know, I mean, I mean we were still alive in, in the other world, but we weren't working, you know. It, we, weren't, we, we, we weren't in this fictional world anymore, and, and I missed it, you know. But it was so sudden. Do you remember when we were shooting those last scenes? It felt so disgusting. No, I mean, like, like it was, it was oh, going to be the last. Oh, it just like a heartbreak. It was going to be the last was, this and the last It was just that. heartbreak. Like, I remember when we wrapped Vanessa, and then I remember yeah. when we wrapped Mode. We, you know, the last day we shot at Mode, the last day we shot no. in the Suarez family, which, by the way, these two started, well, I, can I say this now? They just started stealing everything from the house. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you guys. We have a I was trying to get them not to, and they just said, shut up. Whatever. I have my Hilda Butility sign. There was, it was endless goodbyes. I, I disagree. It wasn't like a 
plane crash. It was oh. just like a very slow, painful. T- <laughs> um, I know. I digress. I, I think you know something. America said. I, I I really relate to, which is about taking that moment and appreciating what you have and what. So often, I mean, look, doing a show and do, a network show where you're doing 22, 23, I think one year we did 24 episodes, it's, it's nonstop, and it is so easy to just get, you know, put your head down and not really, be, you're always thinking about the next thing and what, you know, what the next episode, and you to stop and take that moment and really appreciate, and, and, and I had to learn that, I had to learn to, you know what, this is great, you know, even it, whatever is happening, whatever issues, this is a great moment in, in my life, in our lives, and we have to stop, and you have to stop, and appreciate where you are, because it, it, you never get that back. You never get that, you know, good or bad, those learning experiences or those wonderful moments back. So Another thing that you're watching with these both sofas is that everyone is a pro up here. So our advice is show up in time, know your shit, <laughs> because everyone was prepared. And it's courteous. We get a chance to complete our day. We're not wasting anyone's time. No one's stuck in their trailer having a temper tantrum. Everyone showed up, gave more than 100%. And you are looking at a bunch of pros up here because we love the work, but we're all professionals. So show up in time and know your shit. Hashtag show up on time and know your shit. Hi, um, I just have a really quick um, comment for Miss Williams. Um, I'm not sure if you might remember, but your Pavarotti with Friends sing-along. I grew up watching that, and I will uh, never forget the Betcha Never song and the lovely dress you wore with the huge slit going up there. Uh, um, But I just thought that this would be a really good time to say that um, you're my childhood idol and still am one, so thank you. Now you really better show up on time and know your shit. Uh, Our last audience question, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm curious about the move from L.A. to New York. I, I myself, am from New York and moved to L.A. and then got a job in New York, moved back, and then moved back to L.A. So I'm wondering, I mean, did you move the whole crew to, how did you all do that, and what did you go through in doing that? Um... (laughs) It was difficult. I mean, I look. I, we shot the pilot in New York. We we had planned for the show to sh- shoot in New York, and then the studio said it's too expensive. You got to shoot in L.A. Um, and then this, they passed this tax credit, and the opportunity came to go to New York. And I think you know, look, I, even for the people that moved, that were disappointed that we moved to to we're shooting in L.A. People had. A life that they were building, and so we, when we moved to New York, as great as it was, it was tough. It was tough, and and you know, we I, also left behind like an amazing crew in LA that we were really, really devoted to, and um, I think that was something that that transition was hard. I, I mean, because our crew in LA 
were with, uh, you know, the whole jump, and we had these incredible meals when Papi cooked, and, you know, we all, we all ate. Like, during the scenes, we just ate and ate and ate. <laughs> but then when we got to New York, and the New York crew was amazing. They, we all got there, but, it's, I mean, they would just, like, open a can of beans and <laughs> plop it in a bowl, and they'd be like, rolling! And we'd be like, no! No! No, we eat. We got spoiled. We got spoiled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was difficult, but it, it worked. There was... And then we gained back amazing things like yeah. Pat Field. Exactly. And we gained back... New York City as a backdrop and a lot of us were New Yorkers to begin with so we were thrilled to go back but we did leave our crew behind and the writers stayed in LA and that was a hard transition. It was a disconnect and it was it was it was tough at times um, would if if knowing now what I need you know knowing then what I know now um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know I mean it was again as, as America says there were so many things we gained from it but you know just getting a show off the ground, and, and God, there are so many things that and no people aren't aware of. You're, you're just watching the finished product, but getting a crew of 200-plus people to all jive and work together, because not everyone's going to work out. <laughs> you know, people, there's going to be changes, and so getting that machine to operate smoothly, and we finally got there by... But then we by had the writer's strike the right seasons. in between yeah. in L.A., the writer's and strike, then, so... Yeah, exactly, and then when we upped and moved... It was there was a there was a step backwards. It was a starting over, and and again, a lot of it was just mechanics and making sure that you know these we there were people that just it, it just it was a trial and error, and you know I don't know. I remember the mode the mode set did not fit into oh. our our shooting stages, so we shot nothing but Juarez stuff for the first two weeks, and it wasn't ready. And then and then remember that. We just kept shooting Juarez stuff. We weren't used to that. So it was like, and then two weeks later, it was all mode. And we just like took a vacation for two weeks. Who gets to decide where the reboot is filmed? New York. New York. Hulu. New York. Hulu gets to decide. That's who gets to decide. We'll shoot wherever Hulu wants us to shoot. What is that? What is the hashtag again, America? Hashtag Hulu bring back bet. Uh, what is it? Hug your Bring back Ugly Betty. Hashtag Hulu, bring back Ugly Betty. All right, no better way to end it. Get it trending, people. I want to thank ATX. I want to thank Entertainment Weekly for partnering on this. And I want to thank the creator and the cast of Ugly Betty. And thank you to our fans. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.